called you names. I've humiliated you. Some of you I've hit. And for that, I don't apologize. Welcome to episode 145 of GBW Podcast COVID Edition. Uh, my name's Josh. With me, as always, is Chris. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, I'm waiting for you to go, hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> so t- today we've got a, I don't know, at least I have this a very weird potpourri of stuff, as usual. Yeah. Um, I think I've got a little bit of mediocrity this time, but... But oh. at least there's some interesting titles. I definitely have some mediocrity this time. <laughs> <laughs> Not full on, though. <laughs> at least some of the mediocrity has something to talk about that's interesting, sort of. <laughs> but we'll keep everyone guessing. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going uh, to start. Um, sorry, I'm just turning the light on here. Um, it's like okay, you're in so a sound, I, it's like you're in a sound studio now with the light yeah. shining off you. It's the Bavarian sound studio. <laughs> it's it's October right. it's October and Josh <laughs> looks like a creep in a sound studio. You look like you're like editing like you're editing you're doing sound editing but at the same time you're circling people's names in the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like like Judd Nelson and uh, Rampage or Ma- Rent- Relentless, it? Relentless, Relentless. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, you're the like phone book killer, but you're not quite as you're not sweaty enough yet. So maybe you should start well, start doing some crunches or something while you're talking, and we'll get get you know, all sweaty. So, you know what's weird is some of our listeners might not even know what phone books are. <laughs> Fuck. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> it's those things you type into Google. What's his phone number? <laughs> But it was in book form, <laughs> and it was weird. And and Steve then Martin, it, and Steve, it, Steve Martin was very excited to see his name in one in the jerk. <laughs> that's true. And then it became this thing that you put your monitor on. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's true. All right. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to get started here. Um, Man, we're fucking old. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So a few years ago, I was at the um, the Badass Film Festival here in Vancouver, and I saw a really great short film called The Stylist. By um, at the time, her name was Jill Six, I believe. Um, her real name is Joe uh, Givard Givargizian. Sorry, Jill, if I got that wrong. Anyway, when I uh, when I saw the screening, she was actually at the screening passing out stickers for this movie. Really, really liked the short film. Um, it starred Najara Townsend, who I really loved in Contracted, the Eric England film that, uh, well, his name's a bit tarnished these days, but uh, but it's still a great movie. And she did a hell of a performance in that, as as she did in the short film, The Silence. Anyway, um, last year, Jill um, put up a Kickstarter campaign um, to make a feature, uh, feature film about The Silence, um, again, starring Najara Townsend. Um, so I was a backer of that campaign, and um, it premiered recently um, at um, shit Fantastic Fest. And as part of my uh, 
Kickstarter backer rewards, um, I was able to see a, a advanced online screener of the, the finished film. Uh, so this is The Stylist from 2020, um, directed by Jill Gavargizian. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, so far, this is probably my favorite movie of the year. Um, I love Najara Townsend. I, everything that I've seen her in has been awesome. And this is definitely her best performance. Um, so she is playing a hairstylist that's crazy. Um, so, you know, we've got now a female kind of slasher um, on the rise. And um, she's really, really great in this role. It's um, also stars Bria Grant, who um, has been making a bit of a name for herself, both as an actor and a director in the indie horror. Um, I think a lot of people would probably know her from Beyond the Gates. Um, and although I didn't like that movie, I did think she was probably the best part of it. Yeah, and she so, has that um, uh, she has that uh, Angela Bettis movie, Twelve Hour Shift, that she recently directed that I right. really want to see. Yeah, that just came on uh, on on the VOD. Yeah, I really want to see that one. Nice, nice. Okay, so this one, um, you know, I you know, I could tell from the work of this director that she's obviously talented. Um, like I said, the the original short really made an impression. Uh, there's another short she made called 42 Counts that I thought was pretty good. And, and um, she's just a really, I follow her on Twitter. She just seems like a really cool girl. And I was really excited to see this um, coming to fruition. Um, and I, you know, I, I didn't really have any doubts. It's one of those ones where I just kind of knew it was going to be really good. And it was, it was, this was a pretty great movie. Um, I mean, it's not like a classic or anything, but uh, you know, considering um, a lot of the horror movies I see today in today's day and age, um, it definitely was a, a step up from a lot of the things that I, uh, I come across my eyeballs when I am checking things out on Netflix and so forth. Okay, so we've got, uh, it opens with um, Townsend playing Claire, um, the same character from the original. And um, it's basically the opening scene is uh, her doing a hair, haircut on a woman who comes in after hours. And, um, you know, they're just sort of talking and, you know, Claire's a little bit awkward, but uh, just kind of learning about this woman's life. And then um, she ends up drugging the woman and then um, scalping her and taking her hair hair and uh, wearing it as a wig a la like maniac or deranged or you know take your pick of, of that kind of movie and um and that's kind of her thing um she eventually befriends Bria Grant who um is getting married and wants has wants an emergency haircut um so she go, goes and does Bria Grant's hair eventually they become sort of friendly now I will put in that Claire is a really kind of socially awkward I mean she's beautiful but socially awkward lives by herself like doesn't know how to relate to people um and um it really kind of shows this the loneliness of, of this character and uh, i thought it was really well made with from that perspective like townsend really allows you to see that that loneliness and the awkwardness of that character without it feeling kind of played up like we do in a lot of these kind of movies and, um, you know, when Bria Grant's character starts taking an interest in her as a friend, um, you know, Claire has to go out to like, there's a, a, quite a long scene in a nightclub where she has to go and meet some of Bria Grant's friends. And of course, the friends all think she's weird and, and uh, are, are mean to her and stuff like that. And I could totally relate with that kind of situation. I mean, I'm not one that likes to go out to parties and I don't really care to meet new people that much. I mean, I like people to an extent, but I don't like those kind of situations. So I certainly felt that uh, 
felt that awkwardness and and um, and uh, you know just just how that how that can make you feel kind of bad about yourself. Um, the scalpings are really really gory. Um, there's really great sound design that kind of makes them even ickier than they uh, than they're appearing on screen with the effects. Um, you know, Claire's character has a lot of self hatred. She like you know, does things and then kind of feels stupid about it and beats herself up. And I found those scenes to be quite sad and quite, um, uh, they really kind of got to me. Um, there's a really creepy um, kind of, uh, there's a really creepy scene that reminded me of like the Manson family where like they would go into people's houses and kind of go through their shit when people were um, out or when they were sleeping. That was something the Manson family did all the time. It was called creeping. And uh, there's a scene where um, Claire kind of does that and uh, ends up finding a vibrator. And there's this really kind of awkward masturbation scene. Um, that's It's not graphic, but it's just kind of kind of awkward and weird. And it really kind of worked with the character. Um, so essentially, this is kind of like a crazy girl movie, but done in a, in a way that wasn't, you know, I mean, we love crazy girl movies, but this wasn't done in that way, like Devil in the Flesh or Single White Female or Swim Fan, like those kind of movies where it's all kind of camped up. I felt like this one was a little more grounded and trying to be a character study of what it would like to be this lonely person with severe mental illness that, had, you know, essentially is a serial killer. And I thought it worked really, really well. Thought the ending was a little bit, um, little. That was my my only problem was the ending. I thought it was a little weak, um, but overall, I th I thought this was a great movie, and I totally would recommend people checking it out for a first time feature. Um, this this one knocked it out of the park, and I'm super excited for what this director comes up with next. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. It sounds kind of inspired by say May to go back to Angela Bettis. Yeah, definitely and, uh, has pieces of that. And and also probably a little bit of excision by the sounds of it in a way. Yeah, 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 it, exactly. Like it's, but it, it's, yeah. And because both of those do what I, what I just said, like mm -hmm. they're, they're these crazy women, but it's not played for camp. Yeah. And both of those titles are like that. Yeah. So I would definitely put that in, in the realm of those ones. And again, I think I can't remember if excision was, Ricky Bates' first movie. I believe it uh, was. But, and I believe Lucky McKee, I believe May was Lucky McKee's first movie. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I guess in that, in that respect to a, a really strong debut. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you're just looking for something new and from a director that is one to watch, I would totally recommend checking out the stylist when it comes out. Um, and I'm not sure when that is. I'm not sure when it's being picked up for distribution or who's picking it up right kind of very very fresh it's just started the festival circuit um but i was lucky enough to see it and um, i'm sure this will be picked up quite soon by someone i'll keep my eyes open for it maybe it'll be one yeah. of those ones that just pop up on shutter one day as a pleasant surprise who knows yeah and i think if you um if you look jill jill six i think on twitter like nikki six but jill six um you can find um you can find our website where you can see the original, I believe, as well as some of our other short films. And I'm sure there'll be news about when this gets a, a wide release on there as well. So yeah, cool. totally recommend checking it out. The stylist. Okay. Well, since we're talking about stuff that was like, you know, made by the same people from a previous work, let's talk about uh, a movie called Snatchers from 2020 that I watched. 
And uh, okay. so this is written and directed by Steven Cedars and Benji Klein Kleiman. Um, this is something that they expanded from a web series that they made with the exact same lead actresses in this as well. So much like your stylist movie, only this is a, uh, a horror comedy, which, you know, horror comedies are, are pretty much my jam for the most part, um, especially ones that can balance the goofy, gory with, you know, actual thrills from time to time. Uh, so basically what this is, is it's kind of like a teen comedy meets invasion of the body snatchers in a way. So it's set in 2012. It focuses on a girl called Sarah, played by N Mary Neppy, who she's with the popular girls at school and she wasn't really popular in the past. And we can tell that because her former best friend is this really nerdy looking girl called Haley played by Gabriel Elisi. And she's just kind of like, you know, giving her the brush off, like I'm popular now. And I know we were friends, but I'm kind of like over you for now. Cause if I'm friends with you, it's just, I I'm not really that cool. So it's kind of like that mean girlsy kind of stuff going on. But uh, you know, she has to rely on her friend again because, you know, she finally decides, Sarah finally decides that her, her football boyfriend is going to be able to, uh, you know, take her virginity. So she's like, okay, going to go over to his house, going to seduce him. We're going to have sex and I'm not going to be a virgin anymore. So she goes over there, has they you know, they make out. And then next day she wakes up, she's pregnant. <laughs> not only is she pregnant, she's nine months pregnant. So, oh. so she's like, what the hell is going on here? Well, who can I go to, to help me through this situation? Let's go to my good, my old former best friend, Haley, because she's kind of knows about science and stuff. So we can get her to help me figure this out. So right away, the interplay between these two actors, uh, Mary Neppy and Gabriel Elsie, is really good. Like they really play off each other. Super good. Their chemistry is great. They're always do having me a little sarcastic digs at each other. Cause they're, you know, they're like f not really friends, but they still want to be friends and that's going on. So she takes her to the clinic to say, okay, we're going to go to the clinic. We're going to get you checked out. And you know, she's getting her, her, um, you know, sonogram thing or whatever it is, you know, where they look at the belly to see what's in there with the, yeah one thing ultrasound ultrasound that's what it is sorry and uh the lady's like sees something she doesn't like so she goes and gets a doctor well best scene in the movie the doctor comes in says i'm gonna check it out and they're like uh you might be careful down there and you know she gives birth to an alien baby which on its way out of her vagina blows the doctor's head clean off and splatters his brains all over the wall of the examination <laughs> room and it's fucking awesome <laughs> So instantly I'm like, yes, yes, this is, this is what I like right here. Yep. So from there we learn that this little alien thing, which is kind of like a spider that can leap around and everything can jump on top of someone's head, kind of like a face hugger, but on the head and stick its tail, which has a spike on it in the back of their neck to make them into a hue. So it can take control of them and use them as a puppet. So the rest of the movie is just the two girls trying to stop this alien invasion which leads them through a whole bunch of set pieces, one involving a massacre in a police station, one involving a high school party gone wrong, so on and so forth. And this was actually quite a lot of fun. Like, like I said, the leads are really good. 
Um, the alien effects were actually pr pretty fun because they were, for the most part, practical, which, you know, in this day and age of CG, you and I both still love. So it's like literally a puppet that growls oh, cool. and its mouth yeah. opens like, Rah! and I'm like, yep, good, good. I like that. Everybody in the movie buys into such a stupid premise. And I mean, and sure, some try. Sometimes they try too hard and it seems like they're trying too hard, but it just seems like everyone involved in this got it, knew what they were going for. And we're like, we're just going to make this goofy alien invasion horror comedy that's going to feel like a throwback. And usually with newer movies, I have massive issues with throwbacks. Like I think you do too, right? Like anything that's trying to grab that vibe of 80 stuff, like that Beyond the Gates that we talked that you talked about yeah. last time was one of the ones that was trying to be a throwback that didn't work. This works in a good way for me. Like this actually has that kind of tone that I like. And it really just knows what it's going for. Like they're very confident in what they want to do here. Um, the police station mayhem with all the body jumps is pretty rad. There's a joke involving dismembered hands to open the thumbprint thumbprint reader in the police station that had me actually laughing out loud. And I don't do that that often. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, the boyfriend, Skyler, played by Usher Freiberger. He plays a really good douche boyfriend, especially when they're watching footage that he filmed during his Mexico vacation to try and figure out why she got pregnant after nine months. That stuff's pretty fun. And uh, yeah, it was just like, it was a pretty fun time. Plus, it has a fucking montage, dude. And we know I love montages. Like, it's got a montage. Yeah, it's got that Evil Dead 2 montage going on and i love that shit and you know and and the thing is at times this felt like a joe dante movie to me like gremlins or something like that which means that when the blender moment happens to this it totally fucking makes sense to me because it feels this feels like something joe dante would have made in the in the mid 80s so you know at, sure it ends abruptly and it doesn't hold its weight the entire running time but this was way better than i was expecting it was pretty entertaining. Um, so if you're into like horror comedies, this will probably be your jam. Especially if you're into say like from more recent ones like Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse or something like that. It's kind of got that vibe going on through it. So yeah, it pr I, I dug it pretty good. I'm actually like uh, curious about the uh, the, sh the web series now and I'm going to see if I can find it online because I think it sticks pretty damn close to the movie. So yeah, that's snatchers all right um so next we'll get into the uh, universal horror set again um this is um the next of the series i think i'm halfway done officially now and i i also wanted to say i fucked up the order a little bit um i was going off of um, unfortunately i was going off of a website who had fucked up the order <laughs> and that's, that, that's the order i was following and i should have just done gone by wikipedia or uh i just don't have the box with me when that all that at all times um so i couldn't follow along in the box but anyway disregard the order um i fucked up in two different places so if you do want to follow along with the set in the right order uh go to the wikipedia page and make sure you're doing that anyway the next one that i've come across and i will now fix this so moving forward they will be in the correct order but the next one I came across is Invisible Agent from 1942, uh, directed by Edwin L. Marin. 
um, who did a bunch of stuff, but nothing really of note. Um, And I got to say, man, these invisible movies are just not really my favorite. I I, I know people love this, The Invisible Man, but, um, you know, the first one I thought was pretty good. The second one with Vincent Price I thought was pretty good. Invisible Invisible Woman was okay, but it wasn't a horror movie, and this was another non-horror movie. Um, So in this one, we have um, John Hall playing Frank Raymond. Um, He's, I think, the grandson of the original Invisible Man. And um, the opening scene has him, this guy, he's under a a false name. He's working as a printer. And it's, this is a, remember, the World War II has broken out at this point in time in real world history. So this essentially is a Nazi propaganda film. Um, So... Frank Raymond, the the grandson of the Invisible Man, is working in this printing press. Um, Peter Lorre shows up with a with his gang of thugs, and he's there to try and get the invisibility formula that he thinks Frank Raymond has from his grandfather. And Frank's like, "No, no, I don't have it. I don't have it. You don't know what you're talking about." Anyway, they threaten to cut his hand off in the, in this um, paper cutting machine, which I thought was a pretty good scene, actually. And uh, Peter Lorre is always quite threatening. Um, so it's a pretty great opening scene, but um, Frank ends up escaping with the plans for the invisibility formula and goes to the government where he's like, here, I've got the plans. The Nazis are trying to get this, um, but here, here they are, you know? And uh, they're like, oh, we want to use these plans so we can infiltrate Germany and, you know, figure out what the Nazis are up to. And um, our hero was like, well, that's cool, but the only way that that's going to happen is if I take the formula myself and I'll go infiltrate Germany. So he becomes a spy all of a sudden, parachutes into Nazi Germany, becomes invisible at the time. Another pretty cool scene where he's like, there's he becomes invisible as he's parachuting. I thought that was pretty neat. So the parachute just ends up being like straps hanging. I thought that was pretty cool. Anyway, he infiltrates Nazi Germany and um, is you know, trying to, trying to find these, these plans. I think he's trying to find the, uh, the, uh, a list of spies, the names of a list of names on a list of spies along the way. He comes across Ilona Massey, um, very beautiful woman. Um, she's, um, a German kind of double agent who's working with the Americans. Um, and they, they sort of become friends. This is followed by a comedy scene where, uh, uh, a German, officer is coming to visit Alona Massey. Meanwhile, Frank gets drunk as he's invisible and starts, um, instead of just sitting in the room and trying to hear what the plan is, he um, gets drunk and starts fucking with the German guy, and it's kind of almost a slapsticky scene. Um, so again, I'm like, whoa, this is not a horror movie at all, but it was still fairly entertaining. Um, there's, you know, there's some cool gags. There's like a scene where like he has he puts cold cream on his face so that people can, that the Elona Massey can see what he looks like. Thought that was kind of neat. Um, there's a pretty neat scene where he's captured with a net that's, that's lined with giant fish hooks. Thought that was pretty cool. But essentially, this is kind of like a, 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 a comedy war propaganda action movie, not a horror movie at all, um, aside from Peter Lorre, who is creepy as usual. Um, it was weird seeing Peter Lurie playing a Japanese man, 
Um, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I did I didn't even really figure it out. Well, I mean his his character's name is Baron Aikido. Uh, but I didn't really figure it out until he had all his cronies around him who were all Japanese. <laughs> and I was like, oh, he's playing Japanese. That's weird. Um, so that was kind of strange. Um, um, Frank Raymond um, was played by John Hall, who um, did come back in the next Invisible Man movie, Invisible Man's Revenge. Um, Cedric Hardwick, Hardwick is back in this as um, kind of the lead Nazi. Um, he, I remembered him from Invisible Man Returns, and he was also the lead in Ghost of Frankenstein. So again, we're starting to see players repeating again. Uh, Alona Massey comes back in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which I think is the next movie in the set. Um, but overall, yeah, I mean, I just kind of don't feel this belongs in this series. Like, we're talking universal horror, and Invisible Agent and Invisible Woman are certainly not horror movies by any stretch. So um, it is kind of strange that they did this and, and that these kind of fall under the universal horror classic monsters moniker, because neither of these are even classic monsters. Like the Invisible Woman or this character were not the classic Invisible Man. Like I kind of get the original one, but not these. So it, it is kind of a bit disappointing in that respect, because I... I kind of am liking that kind of gothic vibe of, of these some of these horror movies, like the Mummy ones I've watched recently, aside from the Abbott and Costello performance. Um, and, but even the Abbott and Costello stuff, I kind of like that because at least we've got the classic monsters. I, these are not the classic monsters. This is a, a war propaganda film disguised as a horror film. And it's not a horror film at all. So I don't know if that's, you know, if you're going through these all, you kind of have to watch it because that's how it's been packaged and that's how it was promoted back in the day. But if you're looking for a straight up universal classic horror film, this is not one of them. Yeah, there were, there was there was a lot of these war propaganda films yeah, at the time. So it was probably just universal being like, hey, uh, there, what's a way we can make a little bit of money during these hard times? Got it. Invisible man. What more yeah, could the well, man do? Go fight. The Nazis. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting. Like, I'm wondering if this became a trend because I don't know. Like, are the, are some of the other movies gonna like that are coming up gonna have uh, you know elements of that? Because this was right in the in the thick of it, right? Like, what year was this one? Forty two. Yeah. Okay. So that's near the. That'd be like yeah. That would be right around the the big years of it. So yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Yeah. So it'll be interesting, but uh, very strange. Not what I was expecting at all when I threw this one on, but. That's what it was. That's the invisible agent. Can I can I borrow some fishnet lined hooks, uh, fishnet lined net from somebody? I got some people I'd like to throw that over in my life. It was, <laughs> it was bad. like they were they were big. They were huge hooks. Like they weren't like tiny ones. Like they were big bucket hooks. So what was the purpose of throwing it over him? I don't know. I, I guess so. I guess because so he couldn't get out of it, right? Because it had it was a pretty gnarly trap. Like I was like, oh, that's pretty pretty interesting and i've never seen anything like that in anything else but i would also have thought it would have maimed him a lot more than yeah well that's what i mean like <laughs> like were they like was he invisible and they're like oh if we make him bleed we'll be able to see him or something yeah, maybe yeah but it didn't really maim him as much as i would, would have hoped, hoped it would well it's 1942 how much maiming do you want <laughs> well i don't know a little bit of maiming would be okay <laughs> Okay. All but right. it does beg the question, if someone's invisible and they're maimed, would they bleed? Would their blood be invisible? I guess hmm. so. Hmm. 
things that make you go hmm <laughs> all right that's invisible agent I, not, right. not 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 my favorite of the series but not a bad movie overall okay. all right well since i took a since i took a break from my hammer box at the last couple episodes i decided i'd go back to it and it wasn't right. on, it wasn't on purpose it just happened um so next up in that set was a movie from 1962 which was hammer's take on gaston larue's classic often told tale the phantom of the opera again directed by terence fisher who's directed every one in this set up to this point that i've watched um so basically what this is is it's the same gothic trappings of hammer only set in an opera house. Uh, So the opening scene is a solitary figure playing organ in his underground lair. And then the camera plunks into his eyes and he has this crazed look in his eyes and the credits roll. And I'm like, okay, yep, here we go. They're doing the same thing they did the last movie where they had the werewolf crying at the beginning in close up before the credits came. And then we open on this opera house and they're doing a production of a play called Joan of Arc. And I really like the beginning of this because it's like, they're getting ready to do this play and the play's going on. And, you know, so it shows them like setting up the stage and rehearsing and the band leader, the band's getting ready and taking all the, taking all the covers off the drums and making sure the theater is clean. And I really loved that stuff because at the same time they're doing this, there's this lurking phantom who's like, you know, kind of like fucking with them. So he's like cutting holes in the drum heads and, you know, making things like not run smoothly. And I kind of liked that stuff. I'm like, okay, he's, he's, he's fucking lurking. He's pissed off. There's someone in his friggin' opera house. This is cool. This is the kind of stuff I want, you know? And, and, and amongst that, it's got the usual rich hammer production values. Like that's the thing I've noticed about all of these so far is like, the production values in Hammer films is really rich and lush and much higher class than a lot of these lower budgeted genre films at the time. And uh, I, I mean, I, they're known for that, right? I'd say. Mm. But I haven't really seen a ton of these. So I, when you're watching them all close together, you're like, wow, I, now I can kind of see what people are talking about. Like, sure, the costumes might not be 100% historically accurate, but it's just this nice velvety costuming and colors and the sets are all look kind of old and it just looks, it's really cool. And then the additional production value this movie gets is from having musical numbers that are part of the stage play. So like the movie will just stop for five minutes to have a musical number from this Joan of the Ark, Joan of Arc play. And I'm like, that's really cool. Like, I like that. I mean, for a movie that's only 84 minutes, that's pretty cool that they did that. Right. Um, from there, you know, jur- they're playing a show, a stage hand is hung and comes flinging out during the middle of the, during the middle of the show. So they have to shut down the opera house and then they just have to kind of, find out what's going on uh the main guy is the playwright is played by michael gow who most of us know as as alfred in tim burton's batman movies but he was in a bunch he's been in a bunch of stuff i think he was in a movie you talked about from your mill creek set recently did wasn't yeah yeah he was one of the dharma j warren movies yeah like he was he was in one of he's he was just like that guy and i'm not used to seeing him super young so in this he's pretty young and i'm like holy fuck like I could barely recognize him because I'm just used to him being a butler in the Batman yeah. movie, basically. So he's the the playwright. 
Uh, Heather Sears plays Christine, who's this newly discovered songstress that the Phantom kind of takes under his wing. But at the same time, Gao's character is kind of like this manipulating, rapey kind of creep who's trying to get with Christine. So he'll like take her out to dinner and be like, we can discuss the play back at my house. We could go to my house and discuss this, right? Like he's so it's kind of rapey. And then like Christine hooks up with this hooks up with this guy Hunter played by Edward D'Souza, who's like one of the guys who was funding the play, but is kind of wary of Gao's character and wary of what's going on. So there's all these scenes of them investigating what's going on by like, you know, finding out there's music that's been stolen, finding out about why the Phantom looks the way he is because he's had acid thrown in his face and so on and so forth. And then it just kind of leads to a finale where it's a, a sh- it's a showdown between the Phantom and, you know, Hunter and all them with a little bit of poor choreography, a little bit of sluggish pacing, but it was pretty good. Like, I, I think I preferred Curse of the Werewolf with Oliver Reed, the one before this, a bit more. But, um, and I actually found that the Phantom Mask is p- kind of weak in this because it just looks like gray cloth where they've had one of the eyes just kind of like, glued over because he's supposed to be deformed so his eyes kind of glued over so it's just one eyeball peering out of it and it just doesn't look kind of like the phantomy type like like i guess after seeing lon cheney's the phantom you kind of can't quite match that anyway but i'd say even the robert england phantom is more memorable than the phantom in this right and um herbert long plays the phantom in this and he's kind of He's, he's mildly brooding, but I thought he wasn't given quite enough to do. But I mean, at least the mask was unique and at least the, I mean, I've seen this story so many times, right? Like this is nothing. This has been filmed countless fucking times. So you're not getting anything new out of this, but with the, with the production values and, you know, some of the lead up kind of makes up for the last 20 minutes being kind of, eh. And and Gao is like super super good here. Like he's such an egotistical asshole through the whole movie, and it's surprising to see him being that. So I really liked that about it. But uh, yeah, this movie was a flop when it came out. Like this was really unsuccessful for Hammer, and it actually led to them not kind of firing fisher or fisher as their like go-to director for a while i think after this set freddie francis took over as like their choice director for a while until uh fisher returned so i mean that's kind of a bummer because he's got a very steady eye and keeps these things at least you know like look at they're nice to look at even if they're not the most fast-paced exciting movies in the world but yeah this is kind of a step down from curse of the werewolf but i'm still quite i was still liking this journey into hammer because for someone like me who's maybe familiar with like you know the vampire lovers and like a couple of the christopher lee dracula movies and and you know one of the christopher lee frankenstein movies like i'm not overly familiar with this stuff it's really cool to get the opportunity to watch this stuff you know 40 plus 50 plus years later and it's still kind of holding up and still being like very well made and and at least like watchable stuff even if i'm not completely on board with what's going on so yeah you've you seen this version or no yeah no yeah i don't know i don't know if i've seen any version to be honest 
Really? You're just no Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> I've never seen that. Oh. I, I know Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. <laughs> and I've seen the Broadway play like probably seven times, yeah. but I, I don't know if I've ever seen a screen version. You haven't even seen the silent version, huh? No. Wow. Yeah. That's... I've seen like the unmasking and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, everyone's seen the fucking unmasking. Yeah, but I mean, I haven't sat down and watched it. Yeah, I... I'd say this isn't my favorite version of this story. I mean, my favorite version is Phantom of the Paradise, but that's just a bastardized version of it, really. Like, that's De Palma being like, I'm going to make this story into a rock and roll fantasy. I mean, and I liked Phantom of the Hollywood, Phantom of Hollywood, which uh, the TV movie I spoke about a little while ago that right. has a variation of this too. But I mean, it's a pretty, even if you, you're not that familiar with it. You know, the friggin' story it's, it's been around for so long and been done so many times that it's impossible not to know the story. Yeah. But, uh, I wouldn't say this is the top notch of the adaptations, but it's pretty good. Pretty good. Cool. So Phantom of the Opera, 1962. Nice. I know the universal version that's coming up. Oh, really? The, uh, who's in that one? Claude Rains. I don't know. I think so. It says like two, I think it's, it's in the next few that I'm doing. I think I have that on Blu-ray, actually, if you can believe it. I don't know why I do, but I think I do. <laughs> Sometimes I'll look at my movie collection and be like, when did I buy that? That tells me I buy too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will take um, uh, one of the actors from that, and I will go to The Spy Who Loved Me from 1977. The Bond film, because I know we're never going to do the Bond series, <laughs> so I'm just going to start doing them myself. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is the the Roger Moore Bond movie that I have never connected with. And honestly, I don't even know if I've seen this all the way through. Um, so this is from 1977, so this is between Man with the Golden Gun and Moonraker. Directed by Lewis Gilbert, who went on to do Moonraker, but who also did You Only Live Twice. Um, one of our, I know when we did that, the first Bond series, that was one of our least favorite of the Conneries. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, The Spy Who Loved Me has got a lot of elements of You Only Live Twice in it. And, um, okay, it starts off great. I mean, it, well, and even that, it, it, okay, it does start, start off quite, quite great. It's got a, a good ski... Uh, ski stunt sequence and it's um, if you're familiar with Bond movies um, this is the one where he like skis off of a cliff and then the parachute is the Union Jack and uh, it's pretty iconic and it's a pretty pretty fun ski sequence although I will say um, the one in Hunter Majesty's Secret Service is also really really good and after just seeing whatever that fucking the soldier which also had a really kick-ass ski sequence I was kind of like this one maybe wasn't quite as cool as I remembered it. And also it had like shots of, you know, close-ups of Roger Moore clearly on some sort of sound stage with like weird background <laughs> um, where he's like looking around. And I was like, it just didn't really feel yeah. as authentic as some other ski sequences I've seen, even though this was done by Willie Bogner, who's like the famous ski stunt guy. Um, it just, it just, something wasn't quite as great as I remembered it. Um, Ken Adam returns as the production designer. I've talked about him quite a bit when we were talking about the original Bond series. He's the one who always did the like lavish 
layers of the Bond villains, like kind of the most iconic. He did Goldfinger. He did Dr. No. He did the original You Only Live Twice. And he did this. And I think he did Moonraker. So all the ones that had like the, the lavish villain layer. And when you think of Bond, like when Austin Powers is making fun of Bond movies and the layer, it's probably because of Ken Adams designs. Uh, that's what you're usually thinking of. And this, this layer is, 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 um, is just as great. It's, you know, that um, at LA, LA airport, you know, that kind of like spider looking, you probably don't know. Cause you've never been. I've seen, I've probably seen it. I think I it's know what like, you're talking about. It's like the spider looking, um, structure that's at LAX and uh, the the villain's layer is like a seaworthy version of that. It's kind of like the spidery um, layer that I thought was pretty cool and it's and he sits in his the villain's name is Stromberg played by Kirk Jurgens and he sits in like his kind of like main main room in the in the lair and it's surrounded by water and sharks like shark tanks. And he has like things where like you know he can put someone in an elevator and like open the bottom and then that makes the person fall into the shark tank. <laughs> so like I don't know like that kind of shit I do love about Bond movies like it's it's kind of like you only you only see that stuff in Bond movies or in parodies of Bond movies and this this one had a great Shark Tank so I will give it that. Um, anyway, Roger Moore's third outing as the character. I mean, I really loved Live and Let Die and Man with the Golden Gun. Um, this one um, I felt like. You know, he was camping it up a bit in those two, and I think that's why those are some of my favorites. And after this movie, he camped it up as well. But this one, I felt like when they were trying to go with more of a straightforward spy movie. And For Your Eyes Only, from what I remember, is kind of like that as well. But the rest of Roger Moore stuff is really campy and, and fun. But this one, I felt like they were really kind of trying to, to make an actual spy movie. And I personally feel that, that it kind of suffers for that. Now, I know this is Roger Moore's favorite entry into the Bond series. This is the favorite one he did, followed by For Your Eyes Only. So, I mean, obviously, Roger Moore kind of wanted more of that. Uh-huh. Um, but, I, I, you know, I what I liked about Roger Moore is I liked the crazy gadgets. I liked when he was being smarmy. I liked it when they were fucking over the top, which is why I love Live and Die and why I love Moonraker. And uh, this one just felt a little kind of restrained from that stuff. So the, the plot is that there's a nuclear sub that goes missing at the beginning. This evil dude, Stromberg, has taken over. Um, he's, he's basically devised a plot where two nuclear subs are going to launch attacks simultaneously on Moscow and I believe New York City. And that's going to start World War III. That's his big, that's his big plan, right? So, and then Bond's, Bond's trying to stop stop him. Along the way, he meets up with a Russian agent uh, that he has to work with um, named Anya Amasova, a.k.a. Agent Triple X, uh, played by mm-hmm. Barbara Bach, the mm-hmm. uh, wife of uh, Ringo Starr. Um, now, I don't know, like Barbara Bach, I-, I always thought she was kind of like mocked as an actress. But, I, you know, I've always I've enjoyed her and stuff. I've seen her in like Force 10 from Navarro. And I like I thought she was pretty good. Uh, she was in Street Law with Franco Nero. And I thought she was pretty good in This is Bond Girl. Um, so he has to team up with her. Um, he doesn't know it at the beginning, but in that opening ski sequence, one of the agents that Bond kills that's skiing, it was Agent Triple X's lover. And she knows that Bond was the killer. So there's this tension going on with that. I thought that was kind of cool. This is the first movie that featured Jaws. I mean, he was only in two movies, played by Richard Keel. 
He was awesome in Moonraker. I thought he was pretty effective in this. And I think had I been watching this in, in, in order when these were coming out theatrically, I think I would have been blown away when Jaws first made his appearance on screen. But, you know, after seeing him in Moonraker, I was kind of like, oh, he's kind of boring in this movie. Um, Carolyn Monroe shows up briefly um, as as um, one of Stromberg's henchwomen. Um, she's not in it much. She doesn't have a lot to do, even though she's one of the top-built people. Uh, Valerie Leon shows up very, very briefly as a hotel receptionist. Um, Hammer fans will know her as the lead in Blood from the Mummy's Tomb. Um, and also your buddy, Ed, buddy Edward D'Souza shows up as... Um, um, a, a sheik in the in the middle of the desert that uh, Bond runs into in the in the Egypt sequences. Uh, we've also got the usual suspects: Lois Maxwell as Money Penny, Bernard Lee as M, and Desmond Llewellyn as Q. Um, this one, uh, the main shooting locations were in Egypt. They partic- uh, in particular they shot in Cairo as well as the Luxor. So you get all those. You get the Great Pyramids. You get the Valley of the Kings. All that cool stuff. Really enjoyed seeing the Egypt locations, and they also shot in Italy. Um, some of the big things that are, I guess, other than that main ski chase and the shark tank I talked about, the other big sort of sequence of this movie features a lotus, like a the car a lotus, and it's a, a white lotus that ends up turning into a submarine halfway through the chase. But it's pretty, it's a pretty iconic car if you're a fan of the Bond series. But that's that's kind of it. Like there wasn't a lot, and then there's this overblown finale that takes place on this giant oil tanker that reminded me a lot of You Only Live Twice, where it's just fucking you know agents coming down on like wires and running around and shooting everyone, and you don't even really know what's going on. And um, I just felt like it was a little overblown, and I just felt this didn't have like a. I didn't feel like it had a lot going for it. I, I just it didn't have the gap. It sort of had the humor, but not like some of the other movies. It wasn't really that over the top. And I was a little bit bored. Now, I know I'm a bit in the minority on this one. I think this is one of the better loved movies of the Moore era. But like I said, I like the camp. Mm-hmm. I like it when these things are over the top. That's what I want out of Bond. This is why I'm a big Spectre fan. Like, I love Spectre because it was like the over the top Daniel Craig one. And, um, you know, this was not over the top. Like, even looking back now, like, I almost think the Dalton ones were more over the top than this. So I'm actually looking forward to to revisiting those for that reason. Um, but yeah, I, I just, this one never really made a mark on me. I may or may not have seen it. Like, that's how little of a mark it made on me as a young person. Like, I don't even remember if I, because as things were happening, I kind of was like, oh, I kind of think I remember the Lotus. I kind of right. remember, I do remember that opening sequence, but was that, was that just because I watched a Bond documentary? Like, I don't even know if I watched the whole thing. It's kind of, so it's kind of a weird one, and I don't think I'll go back to this one anytime soon. But like I said, Moore's favorite. Um, I think, I think a lot of Bond fans really love this one, but just for me, just didn't have that entertainment value that I, that I like in Bond movies. Mm-hmm. People are very particular about their Bond movies. But I am a full-on live and let die and Moonraker guy. So if you're like not into those and you want it to be more serious, like some of the Connery entries, you'll probably love this one. But if you like that kind of goofiness of those titles, you maybe you won't. Um, a little bit of weird trivia: um, uh, director Lewis Gilbert was having a hard time seeing at the time. So one of the sets, the um, the the oil tanker 
they actually built the biggest soundstage in the world to build the set. And it's now called the 007 stage at Pinewood Studios. But because the director couldn't really see, he had to get Stanley Kubrick to come in on the down low to help him light the set. So I thought that was a pretty cool fact. And then another pretty cool fact is that Kubrick's stepdaughter is the person who designed Jaws's teeth. So I thought these those weird Kubrick connections, because I would never have put Kubrick with a Bond film in my life. I would never have put that together. And the other notable thing about this movie, it was it was the original um, the original appearance of what's now known as the jet ski. So it showed up the jet ski showed up in this Bond movie as this kind of almost like a gadget, and then it became people liked it so much it actually became an outdoor recreation item that we all know what a jet ski is. So I can so blame I think, James Bond for all those annoying fuckers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can blame Ken Adam. I don't know if it was Ken Adam, but uh, <laughs> somewhat something to do with this Bond movie. But overall, I mean, it's a good movie. I just, you know, it's just, you know, I, 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 we all have our Bond preferences and uh, this is not, not, not what I'm looking for in a Bond movie. Well, then I definitely won't be looking for it in a Bond movie because I'm struggling to watch those things, to be honest. Well, you might. You might. I mean, I don't know. But you didn't like Live Let Die either. So I just think you don't like it at all. Right? Like, you, could, I mean, you may be it's, correct. <laughs> it's kind of one extreme to the other. Like, I feel like this and Live and Let Die are like kind of two different movies. And if you don't like those two... You're not gonna like it. Either, yeah, right? you may you may be correct. It's yeah. it's it's been a struggle watching those things. I gotta admit. Yeah. Uh, so, well, eventually I'll see it. <laughs> one, one, Maybe one day. One day. Yeah. Well, I know I know you were watching them in order, and I know this is your next one. So if you're already kind of off the off the series this certainly is going to bring it back <laughs> well, 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 i guess maybe we should see thanks for the warning <laughs> maybe you should just skip this one and go right to moonraker <laughs> <laughs> at least that one's in space <laughs> well only the endings in space oh, well, it's, it's, it's pretty moonraker is pretty pretty fun mm. all right well how do i follow up james bond i got it um let's talk about the first this wasn't intentional but this is the first movie that was a that's a remake of a 2011 foreign film. <laughs> and that's a movie from 2019 called Miss Bala, directed by Catherine Hardwick. Now, this is a remake of a 2011 Mexican crime film. Uh, I'm assuming that that film is a lot more gritty than this, because basically this is a Hollywood product giving uh Gina Rodriguez a lead role in a movie that's keyed completely to a Latino audience. Uh too bad that it's uh she's not that great in it to be honest. And the PG thirteen Rodriguez. Huh? Who's Gina Rodriguez? She was in uh Jane the Virgin, which was a popular TV show. But I guess she's like she's supposed to be like the next big Latino actress, apparently. Like okay. she's the next up and comer, apparently. So that's why she has this lead role. But uh, she's not that great in this, and it's PG. It's rated PG thirteen. This is a crime film about drug cartels in Mexico. It shouldn't be PG thirteen. Like <laughs> if you're expecting fucking Narcos, turn around and watch Narcos again. <laughs> or Sicario. Turn around and watch Sicario if you got to watch a movie about, you know, 
Mexican drug cartels. So in this, uh, in this Rodriguez plays a, plays a girl called Gloria, who's a makeup artist for, you know, TV and film production in Los Angeles, who decides she's going to head off to Tijuana, Mexico to visit her friend who is taking part in the title beauty pageant, the Miss Bala pageant. And uh, I learned later in the movie that Bala actually means bullet in, uh, in Spanish. So good on you. Way to go. Nice titling of your movie. So anyway, <laughs> she ends up going to a club with her friend. And uh, while she's in there, these dudes break in through the bathroom. So she goes into the bathroom to use it. And these guys come through the vents and are like, have guns. And they're like, you didn't see us. We're going to kill you. You, you know, because they're there to like try and assassinate this police chief. And during all this chaos, her friend's kidnapped. She doesn't know what's going on. So she runs out of the club and she's like looking for her friend and can't find her friend. And then the next day she's still there and she goes up to this cop and says, I need help. My friend's missing. I need you to help me. And she's whisked away by the cop. And instead of going to the police station, she's automatically taken to the lair of this crime guy play called this crime boss called Leo played by Ismael Cruz Cardova. And I'm like, well, that guy's fucking help him. I'm like, so realism is not the name of the game here. Like the cops just going to be like, here you go here. Take you to this crime boss. There's no reason for me to take you there, but I'm taking you there anyway. Oh, and now you're there. This crime boss is going to make you do shit for you. Uh, he's just, he's just going to threaten you. So you go and like, you know, maybe you'll drive the car that's planted with explosives and park it so that, you know, yeah, you know, you got to do this or else you're in trouble. I'm going to give you trouble. And she's doing all this stuff for the crime Lord. And I'm sitting there going, why is she doing this again? Like what's going on here? Like, she was just looking for her fucking friend. Like, why is this cop all of a sudden throwing her to the wolves? And then, and then if it doesn't get even more stupid than that, now she ends up doing shit for the DEA. The DEA recruits her to go after this crime Lord. And I'm sitting there going, who wrote this fucking script? Like, I've had no character development up to this point. There's no explanation for anything that's going on because it's moving so fast. How does she go from being in a club with her friend in the middle of a crime, working for a crime boss, now working for the DAA to double cross that crime boss, and she's just a regular fucking makeup artist from Los Angeles? Yeah, even I'm confused. I didn't even see the movie. I'm like, what the fuck's going on (laughs) right now? So from there, it becomes this like, kind of like, you know, she's like forced to drive contraband over the border. And that leads to this terrible saw, this terrible scene where she's at the border lineup and she's, her performance just goes off the rails. Cause she's like looking all anxious and scared and looking at all the cars around her all sketchily and watching the border guards and getting all more frightened that she's going to get stopped. And I'm like, okay, fuck off. You've taken the contraband over. Now you're going back. And I'm like, you have a, you're in the middle of a shootout with the DEA and this drug lord because they've told you to lure the drug lord there. And instead of going with the DEA, you help this crime boss away. I'm like, ooh, they've changed her character now. Now she's hooking up with the crime boss. Oh, and now she's kind of falling in love with the crime boss and they're trying to make the crime boss into a good guy. And oh, it's leading to this beauty pageant finale where that she has to take it part of to try and actually go after this police chief that was trying to get killed at the beginning. Cause it turns out he really is a scumbag. And meanwhile, I'm just like, fuck it. I'm done. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't understand this character arc. 
I really don't. So what made you watch this? I don't know. <laughs> was it like on Okay, TV? I will tell you exactly why I watched this movie. Okay, first of all, I got it from the library, so I did not pay to watch it. Okay. <laughs> so on the artwork for this movie, they they try and play it off as a badass chick revenge movie. So you know like those movies where like Ms. 45 or you know even like a movie like The Brave One with Jodie Foster, you know, movies where it's like a chick who looks badass shooting men who have wronged her. Yeah. And I'm like, I could sign up for that. I'm okay with this shit. I want to see some chick running around shooting men. We deserve it sometimes. Why not? Right. And on the cover, it's the Rod- Gina Rodriguez's character wearing this like long red dress with a slit up her leg, holding a gun at her side. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. I want to see her killing people in this dress. I'm like, show me that. Nope doesn't show me that until the last 20 minutes of the movie up until that point i was so fucking confused about what was going on because they never once told me anything about the characters and the fact that like i mean you hear horror stories about oh don't go to mexico shit goes down in mexico is shit really going to go down that you end up like asking a cop for help which leads you to working for a crime boss, which leads you to working for the DEA, which leads you back into the world of crime. Is that really going to (laughs) happen? I don't fucking think that's really going to happen. You know? So I'm just like, no, like, no. And the the thing that's bullshit about this movie is they were trying to, they were trying to play this movie off as a big woman in women empowerment kind of angle to it. And I'm calling fucking bullshit on that whole thing. Cause I'm like, I'm watching, I'm like, how's this woman empowerment? Oh, look, she's not afraid to use a gun anymore. Woman empowerment. No, if she was fucking a woman empowered, she wouldn't be fucking like crawling around on her hands and knees, like doing every fucking whim this crime Lord has for her to do. She wouldn't be scared of like being murdered. Like, Oh, okay. Crime Lord. I'll drive this cocaine and money over the border for you don't kill me okay dea i'll spy on the crime lord for you don't kill me that's not woman empowerment what the fuck are they talking about (laughs) so what's what's the do you know much about the original i don't know a heck of a lot about the original um i'm assuming that it's a lot darker than this because when it's all said and done this is a hollywood product Directed by a director who actually started her career off with some pretty good movies like 13 and Lords of Dogtown and went on to make Twilight and Red Riding Hood. So, you know, she tries her best to keep it kinetic, but it's one of those movies that has to relies way too much on those jittery camera movements, Mm -hmm. which I fucking hate in action movies where like the camera's just flying all over the place. And I'm like, somebody fucking put that thing on a steady cam rig or something. So I can actually fucking tell what's going on. Yeah. Somebody get a DP in there. Who's not used to sh- like, who knows what they're doing? Like, seriously, I'm so tired. Like I blame, I still blame the born identity for this shit. And it's yeah. still going on 15 fucking years later. We're still getting action movies where I don't know what's going on in the action sequences. Yeah. I hate that shit. But it's just a really lame, really like watered down, really confusing waste of time. 
Miss Bala is. And if this is the movie that's supposed to make Gina Rodriguez into a star, sorry, try again. Yeah, clearly it didn't work because I'm like, who the fuck's Gina Rodriguez? Well, exactly. <laughs> Maybe she'll be in that Selena miniseries that they're coming out with. Who knows? Okay. Who knows? Who knows? All right. Well, let me. Um, what a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about another waste of time. Um, but I think a lot of people might disagree with me on this one. But this is my second time around. Uh-huh. Thought maybe maybe I missed something the first time, so I thought I'd give it another try. Uh huh. And that's the Strangers from two thousand eight. Yeah, I probably disagree with you. <laughs> Directed by Brian Bertino. If you're talking about the sequel, I'd agree with you. That's a waste of time, but not this one. Yeah. So this one, and I, I felt exactly the same as I as the first time I watched it. So this one stars Scott Speedman. And Liv Tyler, Scott Speedman, probably best known for the Underworld movies. Liv Tyler, probably best known as Steven Tyler's daughter. Um, and Armageddon. Um, they're this couple that, I guess there was a failed proposal at some wedding they attended that on a certain night. So they're back going back to his parents' like summer home or something. And it's sort of in the middle of nowhere. And um, they've had a, this bad night where they've he tried to propose to her. She said no. So it's just like this awkward return to their house. And they can't like really leave each other because they're clearly not, they're away from their actual home. So they go back to this, this house. Um, it's, all, it's all pretty awkward as we kind of learn about what happened. I was actually pretty interested in, this at this time, I I enjoyed kind of trying to piece together what had happened with these two. I did I did think their acting was quite quite well done. Um, and then there's a knock on the door, and there's this girl there saying asking for someone. Is 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 you know is Becky here? And they're like, no, Becky's not here. And then she like the the girl leaves. And then uh, Scott Speedman, and it's, it's all kind of weird when this happens. Like it's all kind of it's kind of creepy the way that there's this knocks on the door and this girl standing there in, in the light. And it's all very kind of strange. Anyway, for some reason, Scott Speedman then decides to go out to get cigarettes for Liv Tyler and leave her alone in this house. And then um, there's another knock on the door, and then basically these three masked mass intruders come are basically they're terrorizing Liv Tyler and as well as Scott Speedman when he, when he returns to the house one of them they're wearing like creepy masks a la like you're next like a one of them has like a doll face and the, the the man has like a kind of a it's kind of like a bag head like Friday the 13th part two or something yeah um and and then it just from there it just I just felt like you know, after this pretty cool setup and pretty cool intro of these villains, it just became this boring, cliche-ridden mess of a movie of people making stupid decisions for the rest of the running time. And I mean really, really stupid decisions, like splitting up, stupid decision, not using a gun, stupid decision, um, friend showing up at the house having a fucking shotgun blast in his windshield and not taking off and calling the cops, but deciding to sneak into the house and see what's going on while loud country music's playing. Stupid decision. Like, you know, in every cliche I could possibly think of. 
Liv Tyler running away and tripping and hurting herself. Like all of these things, I just, I just felt like this was just really hyped up to me as this is one of those next big thing, mm-hmm. you know, the scariest movie ever made bullshit. And I felt it did not work at all the first time around. And uh, it's also, as you've complained about, and, and I always do as well, where the fuck's the tripod, dude? Like, why do you have <laughs> to shoot this whole thing handheld? Like, I kind of get what you're doing, but even in, like, quiet scenes, like at the beginning when it's just the couple, do we really need the camera to be kind of floating around? Like, just put it on a fucking tripod. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Um, you know, yeah, it's pretty nihilistic. Um I almost felt that that was um, like, like I felt cheated by that almost. Like, like that was that was what they were using to sell this movie in a way. And yeah, it totally didn't work for me um, either time around. Um, I actually am more interested in the sequel than this, um, and I'll never watch this again. I'm so glad that I saw this on Prime because I was just about to pull the trigger on the Screen Factory disc because I felt like I had missed something. Uh, because people do seem to love this movies. Although I will say after reading the IMDb reviews, after watching this, I maybe was wrong about that because it seems like the hatred that I have is pretty, pretty uniform in the world. Like there's not a lot of love for this movie, at least from what I could see, but I do know at the time people really seem to love this movie. Yeah. I, 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 I did, did at the time. I really liked it at the time, but I haven't seen it since. So I have no idea how it's aged. Yeah. Well, I'd be interested to see because, um, you know, I, I really, I really kind of felt like, and I don't know why I felt this way, but I, maybe it's from listening to some other podcasts, but I really kind of felt like, Oh, maybe I missed something the first time. And then when Screen Factory picked it up, I'm like, huh, maybe I missed something. Maybe it's just, maybe it was just a bad, a bad viewing experience that first time. And I'll give it a better shot, but man, I was so bored. Like I was so bored, I was like falling asleep. And like I thought I was, it was going to be one of those like, oh, it's so intense. Like I, even though I kind of knew how it ended, I was still kind of looking forward to that. Like that's what I wanted that night. And I was just like, oh my god, this is so boring. And like, why are they splitting up? And why are they so stupid? Like really, like this is like kind of like one of the stupidest couples i've seen in recent memory as far as decisions made during the course of the events of the film. <clears throat> so really really disappointed and really glad i didn't pick up that screen factory yeah if, if you're if you're not a fan of that movie you're gonna probably have a rougher time with mockingbird that he made yeah no i'm, I'm not interested in anything else by this guy to be honest like i really didn't like this at all and uh yeah sorry i, I think if there was one maybe that i was slightly interesting yeah but i would not seek out this director for sure yeah yeah i didn't like this movie at all so but i i did again i'm interested to see what other people think but i've tried it twice guys (laughs) but the strangers just didn't work i i I hate that when you're like maybe i missed something and then you're like nope i didn't (laughs) nope i I really didn't (laughs) Well, well anyway um so let's go for another odd decision and so like Miss Bala, which was an odd decision of trying to make an action star out of Gina Rodriguez, this movie I thought was an odd decision to try and make Don Johnson into an action hero. And I know that this movie is because of Miami Vice that they were trying to make him into an action movie or action hero. And that's a movie from 1989 called Dead Bang, directed by John Frankenheimer. Weird. 
since the guy directed Manchurian Candidate Seconds and a movie that you really like called uh, 99 and 44% Dead. So I thought it was really weird to see him making this. But then I remembered like seven years later, he'd be involved in that disaster that is the island of Dr. Moreau. So whatever. <laughs> so so he had yeah. a weird career, man. John Frank and I were yeah. all over the place. Yeah, he was. Um, so like I said, this is like kind of Don Johnson where they're like, let's try and make Don Johnson into an action hero. But what we're going to do is we're going to sign up a real life LAPD detective called Jerry Beck to co-write the script based loosely on his actual life. And I'm like weird, but because it's based on his actual life, this is the thing I liked about Dead Bang. I didn't like the movie. Like I thought the movie was a failure in a lot of ways overall. But what I liked about this is at least it makes Johnson's character, who also is called Jerry Beck in the movie, into a real person in the fact that he's completely flawed because, you know, he, he lives in a shitty apartment. His, his kids... He's divorced and his wife won't let him see his kids no matter how much he asks. And he's kind of like stuck doing shitty desk duty for the most part. And his glasses are broken and he has to tape them together. And, you know, he's just like this rundown, like LAPD detective who can't just can't catch a break, basically. And I really like that stuff. Like, I liked that stuff early in the movie because I'm like, most of your action heroes are just like fucking super just confident and there and just kicking ass from the get-go and there's nothing like look at like at schwarzenegger and commando a movie i fucking love he's still living living large out in the fucking mountains in his fancy little house and he's having a gay old time with his fucking daughter and chopping down logs and there's nothing wrong with him he's perfect he cooks fucking the perfect omelet and everything for her whereas this guy can't even fucking pay his bills and i like that shit like i don't want my action heroes to be like flawless like that. I, I I like my action heroes to have baggage. And that's what I liked about this movie at the beginning. I mean, fuck, there's a scene early in this movie where he's chasing a guy down on foot, like a suspect. He has a foot chase with him and he gets so winded by the end of the foot chase that he's leaning over the guy after he's caught him. He just fucking throws up all over the guy because he can't catch his breath. And I'm like, that scene is really cool. I mean, it's disgusting, but it's really cool because it shows you that the guy is like, you know, I love that touch because it, it, it makes him into a real person to me. So, and it's too bad the rest of the movie didn't do that. Like the first half an hour of this where it's doing that, I really liked that stuff quite a bit. Um, so, you know, we see him, we open with him in his crappy apartment, his overdue bills as kids. And then at the same time, we have this neo-Nazi white supremacist guy going into a corner store and violently robbing the place and gunning down a cop afterwards, which kind of leads our, leads our detective into an investigation as to who killed the cop, which leads him to, you know, running down this, this party of white supremacist Nazis. And it's weird because... He goes so far out of his jurisdiction to do this that I'm like, would he actually be able to do the shit he does in this movie? Like jumping states to go and hunt down these white supremacists? I'm like, I don't think so. But another problem I kind of had with this movie is they've brought on this this cast of decent actors and totally wasted them. 
So you've got like Bob Balaban shows up as like this parole officer who's briefly in the movie because he's like the parole officer, one of the guys that Jerry's trying to track down and he's kind of comic relief. You've got friggin' um, Penelope Ann Miller showing up and in the first scene she has with him, she basically goes and sleeps with him. So I'm like, okay, you've made this guy into a fuck up, but Penelope Ann Miller is still willing to sleep with him. The first time it's, it's Don Johnson, though. but I know, but like, and then they try and explain it off that, Oh, I'm the separated wife of the cop who was slain. And I'm just trying to sleep with you so that you can help me find his killer. And I'm like, well, that logic makes no sense to me whatsoever. So there's that going on. And, and then it, Williams Forsyth is here as the FBI agent. And I like William Forsyth. I liked him in uh, Out for Justice as the bad guy, the Steven Seagal movie. I think he's pretty crazy in almost everything he does. He was the bad guy. I think he was the bad guy in that Firestorm movie with Howie Long. Yeah, yeah. And he was pretty good in that. And he's the FBI agent in this, but he doesn't get to cut loose. So that was a really big disappointment for me that he doesn't get to cut loose. But I'm like, but I'm watching it and it's like, it's wasting its co-stars. And you've got Tim Reed who played Venus Flytrap on WKRP in Cincinnati is a black sheriff who he teams up with in the finale. And even he's wasted. And there's a shootout in these underground tunnels in the finale. And I'm like, this should be more exciting than it is. And the baddie should be a lot more menacing than they are. Cause they're fucking neo-Nazi white supremacists. I picture them as these like fucking lumbering fucking badasses, right? And they're not in this movie. They're just very slight and forgettable. So I like considering all that stuff, I'm like, this could have been so much better. But then also considering the fact that this movie's 31 years old, looking at the plot line of this, it's fucking oddly appropriate for what's happening in the States right now. So it's really like weird watching this nowadays when all the stuff's going on with like, you know, white supremacists and black yeah. lives matter and all that stuff in the States. It's fucking was so uncomfortable watching this stuff now, knowing what's going on in the real life. But I just think it could have been a lot better. Like Johnson, Don Johnson is actually pretty good. Like he's pretty good in this. And, and overall it's a, a pretty well-made action movie. Like Frankenheimer knows how to make an action movie. I mean, there's the shootouts are pretty good, but I just thought that wasting the cast and not really making villains who I can hiss at and not really having a script that was that engaging outside of the fact that the guy's a fuck up kind of made dead bang, like kind of a bummer actually. Cause I'd seen this like way back in the day and I was like looking forward to revisiting it. And when I found a copy at like a, a pawn shop, I was like, Oh yeah, dead bang. This is going to probably be sweet now. And it's still not very good. I don't remember liking it back then. And I don't remember liking it that much now, which is, which is too bad. Cause Johnson's really gone on to be like a scene stealer in a lot of stuff lately. Like in like, uh, you know, Django Unchained stealing scenes in that movie. And you know, he's he's I really liked Don Johnson. So it's kind of a bummer that he couldn't have become an action star because he's pretty good in this, to be honest. You ever yeah. seen it? Yeah, I saw it theatrically. And oh, wow. Being bummed out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was a big Miami Vice fan. Yeah. So I remember, remember being like, oh, that kind of sucked. <laughs> yeah. So see, I'm not wrong. I'm not no, wrong. No, no. It's just okay, too bad. So, 
so I shouldn't revisit it. <laughs> no, because it's it's been one I've been kind of like, hmm, maybe I was wrong on that the first time. Around. <laughs> well, well, don't worry, Josh. If we ever see each other again, it's in that bag of stuff that you're getting. <laughs> <laughs> we will, we will. Don't worry. <laughs> so that's dead bang. All I right. Wish it, I wish it had more bang to it. Ah, ah, ah. Ah, but it was just kind of dead. Ah, <laughs> dad <laughs> jokes. We're old enough for them, so might as well do them. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So a hundred <laughs> years ago, Uh-oh. when you ordered from Severin, okay. sometimes they would just chuck in a few extra. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember this. That you didn't ask for, right? Yeah, I've got that before. So this is one of those. So I, I wouldn't have bought this on my own, but Severin just chucked it in. And I, I got to say, good decision, guys, because I kind of dug this one. <laughs> and that, that's a really weird movie called Dream Stalker from 1991. Oh, you got this for free? <laughs> I did. Did you pay for it? Do you have No, it? I don't have it. It's that Donald Farmer one, isn't it? No. So you haven't seen this thing. Isn't it like a slasher movie with like a metal band? <laughs> no. Okay, let me tell you what it is. Okay, tell me. I might be getting it confused with something else. Okay, so it opens with this these two characters Brittany and ricky and Brittany and ricky are in love he's a dirt bike rider she's a model tell me more and, and they're a young they're a young um couple and they're in love and it opens pretty quickly with a bit of a montage of them falling in love oh man he's like proposing to her you know in between dirt bike riding so it like shows like her at the race and there's like all this dirt bike footage and then it cuts to like them on like a on like a um, a field where he's you know trying to give her a ring and as they're having a picnic. Then they go to the Clarion Hotel and he gives her like this really weird gift, which is like a um, it's like a music box with this really creepy clown head, and he gives her that. And this is all in the montage. And then after that happens, then they make out in I'm assuming the hot tub at the Clarion which actually looks like the, a backyard hot tub with a weird cheap tent over it. And there's this kind of weird hot tub sex scene that happens. And I'm like, oh, this is really, this is really weird. And he's also super insecure. So he's this like long haired dude, kind of cool, but he's constantly like, you'll never leave me, right? You'll love me forever, right? Like constantly. And I'm like, oh, what the fuck is happening? And I, I, I also got to add, this is a shout out video. But um, so they're, they're fucking, um, they're, they, have, they do it in the hot tub. They um, gives her the weird music box. Then um, she's on a flight from, because she went to a model, modeling thing in New York. And I guess she's flying back to Sacramento where they live. And she has a vision that he got in a dirt bike accident. Uh oh. <laughs> and um, so is then the vision home. is the vision awesome at least? Uh, no, it's not very awesome. And then she gets home, and her Asian friend runs over and says, "Ricky died." And then <laughs> she, then she like breaks down on the front no! steps of her house. <laughs> exactly. And then the opening credits roll. And what? I'm like, oh yeah, this is all before credit. What the fuck? <laughs> is this like 20 minutes in? Okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's like 15 minutes in. Okay, so then cut to three years later. She's been having nightmares about Ricky. Uh-oh. And um I know what's gonna happen. 
So she's like wondering what's going on. She's having nightmares. She's going to visit her doctor, Dr. Frisk, who is played by the makeup artist slash stunt coordinator, Keith Lack. Um, and again, this is a very low budget movie. And he's trying to do an accent. And I'm like, is it British? Is it German? Is it Scottish? I don't know. I really couldn't figure out what accent this guy was trying to do. So that was pretty entertaining. Um, she keeps having these these dreams, including <laughs> she has one dream where Ricky, and I, and I don't know how this happened either, I might add. This is the second motorbike killer movie I've seen in as many episodes. After Nightmare Beach, <laughs> this is another guy that's dressed in a, the motorcycle oh, garb no. with the helmet. <laughs> yeah, it's a, two motorbike motorbike helmet movies in a row. Ne- but anyway, next, next episode, you should watch Night School to finish this trifecta. They, oh, I, actually, I have that. Yeah, but um, there's one anyway. In in one of the visions, uh, this is so fucked up, dude. Um, zombie Ricky like comes in <laughs> as she's sleeping. She's sleeping. Uh-huh. And I guess she dreams that that zombie Ricky comes in, and he's got like one of his eyes is like coming out of his head, like it's 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 like burned, and he can kind of see his brain. Pretty good makeup effects, actually. And then he get, gets on top of her, and he's like starts to like like rape her in her sleep. And as he's like climbing on top of her, he goes, "Oh, wait one second. And he fucking pulls out a condom. <laughs> it's so weird. And then he like opens it up, puts the condom on, and then he starts like sleep raping her. That's... And then and then he goes, oh, it broke. Oh, well. And he keeps going. And then she wakes up and it's like, I'm like, what the fuck is happening? It was the strangest. Why does a zombie need a condom? It, it, there were so many questions. <laughs> and, there, oh, and there is so many more coming. Okay. So after this happens, she's going to Dr. Frisk. She's trying to figure out what hap- what's going on. She decides to get away to the country. So she goes to this, <laughs> she goes to this like country, co- like cabin area. And it's run by this guy named Sage, who runs, who's also running a camp for troubled youth. So she's going to this getaway, but it's actually also a camp for troubled youth. So she looks like out her window one day because she can hear this loud hip hop music playing. And there's four girls out there having a hip hop dance party for no particular reason <laughs> in the middle of the day. And they're dancing <laughs> like they just out of nowhere. And she's like, shut, turn off the music. And then there's like this confrontation between these four, like kind of troubled youth girls and our, our heroine, Brittany as uh, she tries to get them to turn down the music and, you know, the black girl's like, shut up, bitch! And all this stuff. So there's all this confrontation between them that happens. Sage is really creepy as an older guy, and I think he's kind of, like, macking on the young girls. Then um, Brittany's, like, walking through the forest, and two of the male youth camp people try to rape her and end up, like, knocking her out and then running into... In, and like they're kind of scared so they run run away after they've knocked her out because they think they killed her and they get into their boat and then all of a sudden it gets really foggy and then <laughs> Ricky comes out of the water and tries to kill them with a knife it's so fucked like it's all over the place then she meets up with this guy named Greg <laughs> who's like this really kind of good looking guy kind of reminded me of um, Greg from The Room like that kind of actor and um, he ends up uh, well, he, they meet when he walks into her cabin with his dog and finds her in the shower and he's all kind of like weirded out, but not 
really registering that he's like looking at a naked girl. It was very, very weird. This whole movie has this, all this weird stuff going on. Anyway, they start kind of falling for each other. Then the fucking sack starts. Nice. And they, they have sex. And then it gets, the sex is a little bit more graphic, but not too graphic. And, um, and you know, um, meanwhile, Ricky just keeps popping out, like, popping up like out of nowhere and like randomly killing people, but not super graphically. And, um, you know, the theme fucking music just keeps playing over and over because it's the, the song of the doll. So whenever the doll starts I get this song that keeps playing and it's like this, this like you know do 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 like a music box song <laughs> and it's super annoying and um <sighs> it it was something else now i will say i had to watch this with subtitles because the sound the audio issues well, i guess when they were filming this were so bad that <laughs> like over half the dialogue it was like <laughs> like that was going on like cars driving by and fucking generators <laughs> happen. So like you couldn't hear half the dialogue so I had to watch with subtitles. They were recording it with cassette tape. <laughs> but I will say it did hold my interest. I thought it was pretty entertaining. I mean it's you know it's it's sort of compared a bit to like a nightmare on Elm Street on motorbikes. But I don't I don't this is not a in my opinion, this is not a Freddy Krueger ripoff. I guess maybe it kind of was given the time period and that she's able to, she's like dreaming kind of premonitions featuring this motorcycle clad, um, motor motorcycle uniform clad villain slash hero, because I couldn't figure it out. Like he seemed to be kind of protecting her, but then he was also kind of after her. Um, but it was, it was, it was something, man. This is something I would recommend this if you, especially if you like shot on video stuff, I'd like to know why well, actually I did check out what Richard Bach thought of it. He wasn't a huge fan, but um, this is, it's, it's that kind of craziness from this era where you just put something on and you just don't know what the fuck's going to happen next. And that was exactly what this movie is. Um, I thought Severin did a really, um, really good job. This is under their intervision label, which is, which is uh, shot on video stuff. They actually had a, there's an interview with Ricky the guy actor who played Ricky now telling some stories, including a great story about there was a stunt of a guy jumping off of um, like a second floor balcony. So this act, this stunt guy like climbs up on the railing of a second floor balcony and leaps to the ground. And apparently he, all he put down on the ground was a fucking queen size mattress. <laughs> and then he kind of missed the mattress and he ended up breaking his leg in like five places and he, when you watch it, you can actually see him bounce as he hits oh, the ground. Oh, man. Anyway, it's a pretty great story. So, like, the the extras, I, I really liked that, the uh, interview with Mark Diaz, the actor that played Ricky. And there's also an interview with a producer that was also pretty uh, pretty entertaining. Um, yeah, I mean, this certainly was entertaining. Certainly kept me, kept my interest. And uh, for the price, I mean, these things are super cheap. And I, I would totally recommend checking this one out if, uh, if you like this kind of oddball shot on video obscurity stuff where uh, you know definitely a, a good one to watch with you know maybe a friend or two and have with a few beers it's one of those kind of movies but i i thought it was pretty entertaining so that's I, dream stalker i've i've considered buying this in the severance sales in the past and have always put it 
removed it from my card at the last minute. <laughs> oh, dude, it's like 10 bucks, man. Like, it's it's, it's worth it. It's I, worth it. And I was just like, do I want Dreamstalker this time? Or should I go for should I go for another Bruno Matai movie? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, I don't know, man. Like, Probably you know, about the same uh, quality. <laughs> it's kind of, you're kind of looking for the same thing. You're looking for a pre- pretty bad movie with some bizarre scenes right yeah yeah. and that's this certainly delivers on that oh now i'll have to make sure i get that on my next uh severin order when they do their black friday or something (laughs) yeah for sure all right well i might as well talk about a slasher movie my only slasher movie this time and uh so josh i have a question for you actually so say for say a bunch of your really close friends were killed okay and say a year, and say a year later, you were still kind of like traumatized by this event. Like, say you were having like really bad nightmares, where you're like have the killer popping out at you, and and say for example, like you know you just can't seem to function in your everyday life that much, and you're you're just so racked with guilt. What would you do? Go to a psychiatrist. Mm, you would think so, right? No, in this movie. She goes on a fucking Bahamas vacation. And I'm talking about well, and I work. I'm fucking talking about I still know what you did last summer. <laughs> so, oh no. So Oh no. So this is a sh- fucking shit show. Um this is a ru- obvious rush job to get a sequel in theaters. Uh, the year after the first one was a hit. And it's quite obvious by how brain dead the entire plot is to this thing. Like, come on. Like, okay, so you open it up with Jennifer Love Hewitt's character, Julie, going to a confessional booth. And it turns out to be a confessional booth. And it turns out to be a nightmare because she's confessing. Oh, me and my friends, we we ran someone over and we we dumped the body and ah, and this happened. And then the fisherman guy jumps through the confessional booth at her and she wakes up in the middle of class having a nightmare. I'm like, oh, we're doing that, are we? And from there, we find out she's still haunted by the fisherman. She's now off at university or college and and her best new pal Rumi is played by the singer Brandy. And, you know, she's still pining for, for Ray played by Freddie Prince jr. Who's like, you know, still back in their hometown and he's still like on his fishing boat and he's still driving somewhere with his buddy singing. Here I go by white snake. And I'm like, wow, it doesn't get much cooler than that. And then they end up winning a fucking trip to the Bahamas from a radio contest. So, you know, that's how you get over your friends dying and being traumatized by a a psychopath as you go to the Bahamas. It seems logical enough to me. Go off to the Bahamas, you know, show up there, meet the cast members who are running, who are at the Bahamas. You got Jack Black unbilled. Really? Yep. As an obnoxious, dreadlocked, drug-selling custodian who fucking annoyed me through the whole goddamn movie because he's so fucking obnoxious. And every time in the movie, he's popping up out of the blue, smoking a joint. So, for example, there's a scene where Brandy and her boyfriend, played by, uh, played by, what the fuck's that guy's name? Oh, he's an actor you like, too. Sorry, I have to look this up because I'm going to, I feel so upset that I can't remember his name. Played by... The actor 
McKay, Fe- McKay Pfeiffer. Oh, McKay Pfeiffer, yeah. So he's making out with Brandy in the hot tub, and Jack Black pops up out of the pool beside smoking a joint, going yippee doo doo doo, and he does this. Oh, through the, he does this God. through a good chunk of the movie, just smoking joints and being obnoxious. Um, also on hand, we have Jeffrey Combs from Reanimator. Mm-hmm. playing an uh, the awesomely sarcastic hotel clerk. He's the guy who makes this movie worth watching anytime he's on screen. Um, you've got a scene where they do karaoke. <laughs> uh, because at the time, Jennifer Love Hewitt was attempting to start, start a pop career, uh, yeah. which the music video for her big attempt at a hit song is included on the DVD called How Do I Deal?, which is also on the soundtrack of this movie. So instead of having the alternative music of the first movie, this just has fucking Jennifer Love Hewitt songs. Um, While they're doing karaoke, guess what pops up on the lyrics teleprompter, Josh? I know what you did last summer. I'm like, oh, fuck, here we go. And, you know, there it's just the hotel staff being picked off. Freddie Prinz trying to warn her that she's in danger. Jack Black smoking weed and cracking jokes. Um, a really terrible scene where the killer traps Jennifer Love Hewitt in a tanning bed and they have to smash their she had, They have to help her smash her way out of it. And I'm like, hey, didn't Final Destination do this so much better like 10 years later or whatever <laughs> yeah. it was? Um, and then we've just got like this fucking ridiculous subplot with Freddie Prinz trying to get from their hometown to the Bahamas to try and save Jennifer Love Hewitt's character by like going into a pawn shop to buy a gun and piloting his boat through a fucking rainstorm and trying to get there in time to save her. And I'm like, what's the point of this again? I'm like, he was fucking useless in the first movie, but why is he like, no, wouldn't you take a plane? Like, why? Like, no, Um, it's just really, really lame. Like the deaths are lame. The fucking plot is horrible. Uh, the death, like the only good kill in this involves Jeffrey Combs. He gets the best setup. Like, you know how when in these movies they find the bodies, when they find his body, it's a really cool scene, but that's the only thing this thing's got going for itself. And the fact that they've set their movie in the Bahamas and decided to make it that a storm's just come in. So the entire movie is all raining and windy. It's like, fuck off. Don't set your movie in the Bahamas then. Put it back on that fucking island fisherman town if you're going to do that shit. And it's just got a scene of Jennifer Love Hewitt spinning around in the middle of the rain in a white t-shirt going, I'm right here. Come get me. She did that shit in the first movie. Why does she have to do it again? Like, come on. And it's raining when that happens. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I remember that. It's so fucking lazy, dude. This is such a lazy ass sequel that was only made to make more money. And I don't understand why it exists. I remember actually liking the third sequel that went to directly to DVD better than this, which is a sad state of affairs. And yeah, it's, it's miserable. Uh, Directed by Danny Cannon, who is a music video director. Uh, The movie he made before this, Josh is Stallone's version of judge dread. So yeah. Yeah. It's no Carl urban dread. It's fucking Stallone. Uh, and the law. It's that judge dread. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know why the fuck I'm doing this to myself. <laughs> Did you know that 88 films, I believe is putting out a box set. I heard that crazy. And I saw someone being like, who's excited for this. And I'm like, should you be? 
<laughs> with a question mark. I'm like, really? Like you're you're kind of excited for like a mediocre, a mediocre teen slasher and its shitty sequels on Blu-ray. You're excited about this? Well, this is probably people that this was their eighty slashers, right? Like, <sighs> yeah. Well, like I said on the first movie, <laughs> if you haven't witnessed 80 slashers goodness like the burning or blood rage or hell fuck there's a new friday the 13th box set out there i mean sure it might have some problems we don't know yet but do that instead of buying 88 films as i know what you did last summer box set come on yeah this is a oh my god and i've got one more to go i know i know it's sad when i'm only two movies in and i'm already tired of the franchise (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> at least with children of the corn it took three four movies <laughs> so yeah yeah oh my that, god yeah so yeah i still know what you did last summer yeah no <laughs> <laughs> all right um okay i'm gonna go back to dream stalker for one sec just another fun fact about that movie the director okay. took his name off of it uh-huh. which is something you never hear of in um, shot on shot video, on video <laughs> now the only reason I'm bringing that up again is because on that disc, there's a second feature. Okay. Called Death by Love. Okay. Death by Love from 1990, um, starring, written, produced, and directed by Alan Grant. And no, this isn't a Motorhead song. Um, this is a, a the second feature on the Dream Stalker disc. And man, if 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 you thought $10 was cheap with for just dream stalker, <laughs> now you're getting two movies for that price. And this one was something. Okay. So what's it called? It's called death by love. Okay. Like all, all I could think of was killed by death. Killed right? by death. <laughs> killed by death. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you get killed by death every time, Lemmy, but okay. <laughs> I'm not going to okay. argue with you because you scared <laughs> <laughs> so this one was shot in Texas. It's okay. another shot on video movie. Okay, so we okay so <laughs> okay the, the composer is uh, as as the credits were rolling. I'm like it said composed music composed by Fheim, and I'm like or Elf Elfheim. I'm like oh fuck. So I for, and I thought it was like um, a composer like with one name like trying to like be like Madonna or something, but it turns out this is bad, but it's this bad keyboard band. Yeah. Anyway, they do the music. Okay. So we're introduced to this character named Amy and she's just got a heavy Texan accent and she's like jogging. <laughs> and then she runs across this guy named Joel, who's kind of balding. He's, you know, he's, he's probably looks around 30. Um, you know, he's, he's a nice looking guy, but not, 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 not like a chick magnet. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's kind of, yeah, he's just not someone you'd imagine women falling all over. Anyway, <laughs> he meets with Amy. He starts kind of macking on her a bit. She pretty quickly falls for him. Um, there's a montage of nice. falling in love. They fucking jog together. They go for dinner they go to the park and feed ducks and then they go back to her place and fuck for 20 minutes. Hold no, on, for- hold, dude, 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 hold on, hold on. Both of the movies in this DVD set have montages. Yes. 
fuck I'm in. Yes. <laughs> very, very early, very early montages. Okay. So they, they, um, 20 they minutes this. of fucking. So they, no, it's not 20 minutes. It's probably five minutes. Okay. So very, very, uh, an extremely long sex scene for a shot on video movie and quite graphic. I might add, like there was a lot of boobs, a lot of butt. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of surprising. This is not what I was expecting. Not that I knew what to expect. Cause I literally didn't read anything about it. And the montage dude, like it's not, there's, it's no, I melt with you. Okay. <laughs> like this isn't Valley girl. Uh, but there, but there is some, there is some nice stuff. I particularly like the ducks. Anyway, um, it's because ducks are cute. And, <laughs> Amy then ends up dead, so she's discovered dead in her apartment. Joel's like, "Oh my god, what happened? What happened?" Um, so then he he he's he's a sculptor. His job is a sculptor. He's an artist, and he um, you know he he he's talking to his business manager about this, who's older. She's like probably like I'd say late fifties, early sixties. Anyway, he's talking to her. Oh my God. I can't believe that, that um, Amy died. And then the business manager's like, Oh, well my shoulders really hurt. Could you give me a massage? (laughs) And I'm like, what? And then literally the 60 year old woman unbuttons her top and he (laughs) starts massaging her. (laughs) So she's now falling for him. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? When, why, why is this like paired with Dream Stalker, a horror movie, right? But she's like a grandma. And I'm like, oh my God, this is very strange. So that happens, but he doesn't go for it. He doesn't go for, doesn't go for Ellen. And, um, and also I might add, Ellen drives an older model Mazda RX-7, which is uh, one of my favorite cars. So it was pretty cool seeing an RX-7 because I haven't seen one of those 80s RX-7s for a long time. So that's pretty cool. Meanwhile, we've got a black and white cop named uh, Mike and Rick. They're um, they're on the trail trying to figure out what's what's happening and how Amy was killed. And they figure out there's this guy named Ed who's a psychopath that um, is also a devil worshiper that um, has been released from the mental institution. And he's out and about... Um, and I think he had a beef with Joel, maybe. I can't remember what, what the deal was. All I all I could think of with Ed was that he was a, a pretty strong looking dude that looked kind of kind of reminded me of uh, Robert Zadar in a way, but a thinner version. And um, the only other notable thing about Ed is that he sang the Wizard of Oz theme as a kind of a funny clip, but he didn't sing it in the right key and he didn't sing it correctly. And I was like, who doesn't fucking know how to sing We're Off to See, see the Wizard properly? <laughs> so that was kind of strange. Anyway, Joel is now gone to his retreat out in the country because he's, he needs to go create some more art. So he starts to do this new sculpture. Anyway, Renee, the super hot real estate agent for the property, I'm not sure why she was there. I think because he just bought the property and she was following up. Do you like the property? Oh, what are you doing? Oh, you're sculpting. Oh, can I watch you sculpt? Okay. So he watch, she watches him sculpt. And the next scene has them sculpting together and getting clay all over each other. And then he has to spray her off with the fucking um, hose. And then she gets naked. And then they fuck in another super long love scene. And I'm like, first of all, this girl is super hot. 
played by Erica Mills. And I'm like, like way hotter than, again, not knocking direct-to-video movies, but I'm like, she, like it's gotta, she's got to be a stripper. Like, she has to be a stripper because she was that hot. And I'm like, why is she falling over with this guy? Then I'm, then I'm like, okay, this fucking guy has to be the director. There's no doubt in my mind. <laughs> and I didn't know yet, right? I just was like, this, this has to be the director. And sure enough, yeah, Alan Grant starred, wrote, produced, directed. And clearly, vanity project to get with hot checks. So this was like a total like Tommy Wickerl of like like the the original fucking like version one. Like this is where the room came from. I think is a movie like this, a vanity project with this guy who's like casting himself as the lead and then casting all these hot chicks that he can do these like long love scenes with. And I thought it was pretty crazy. Anyway, after a few nude scenes with with Renee, there's then a vampire element introduced to the film. And I'm not going to reveal where that goes. Um, I'll let you find that out for yourself. And then we've got some chase scenes. We've got another woman who's actually um, um, Joel's niece. So at least we know he's not... Oh, no, he's not Joel's niece. He's Ed's niece, Ed the Psycho's niece. and um, But she doesn't get naked. But anyway, it, it does lead to another thing where Ed's niece gets um, taken by Joel and then there's a, a, a kind of a, you know, frenetic ending that happens with chase scenes and, and a bit of violence. But man, this one was totally unexpected and I, I was pretty fucking entertained by this, this one as well. And for the same reasons as, as Dream Stalker, um, and I was not expecting anything and I was like, this is crazy town all over again and I totally like this one. So for these two, this is so worth the ten dollars if you like shot on video <laughs> shit. And these are two I'd never heard of that I just sort of threw on and I totally like them. And the other fun thing about this movie that's really kind of gives it this otherworldly feel is director Alan Grant only has four fingers on one hand. So but it doesn't look like it, it looks normal. Like he doesn't like there's no like missing space or anything. It's really weird. So whenever you're you see him like caressing a bare ass or whatever, <laughs> there, <laughs> there's only four fingers and it's really strange. Like there's a thumb and then three fingers on the ass. And the, on the other ass, there's like the five fingers. You're like, is that Homer Simpson? <laughs> it is. It's like a cartoon character. It's really weird, man. So think of that when you're watching this movie. But yeah, this is uh, pretty pretty entertaining. Um, I, I, I liked it quite a bit um, for what it was. And again, totally kept me awake and uh, <laughs> wasn't expecting to like this at all. So thank you, Severin, for throwing in this double feature when I bought those movies for me a few years ago, it was well worth uh, Well worth it. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, Jesus. Yeah, I don't, death, I, death by love. I don't even know how to follow this shit up. Like, seriously. <laughs> well, I might as well follow it up with, with a, uh, another vanity project. Um, this is one that I, I'm not going to talk about this one that long because Really, it's 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 not a good movie, but it's worth talking about just because it's so fucking bizarre. Uh, that's a movie called Jiminy Glick in La La Wood from 2004. Now, how I say this is a vanity project is because this is Martin Short from SCTB fame. He made this character up called Jiminy Glick. 
which put him in a fat suit. So right yeah. automatically, I'm like, okay, nope, not a big fan of fat suits. Kind of like you're not a fan of like guys getting dressed up as females in movies. I'm not a no. fan of fat suits particularly. So it's him in a fat suit playing this really naive, obnoxious kind of like celebrity interviewer slash movie critic. And he had a show on Comedy Central called Primetime Glip Glick as this character that lasted two seasons that I never watched. And I was, and then they decided, let's make a movie of that in 2004. And I'm like, okay, let's see what this is all about. So really, this is him taking his character and they've said, hey, the Toronto International Film Festival is going on right now. Let's go film at it where we'll have him in character, go up to a bunch of various actors and interview them, improv, and then we're going to wedge in a story where it's him and his wife, played by Jan Hooks, who was on Saturday Night Live, getting into mischief with each other. But then we'll make the second half of the movie a fucking murder mystery involving an, a vain actress played by Elizabeth Perkins and murder and where they have to try and figure out who did it. And I'm like, it's so fucking weird, dude. Like, this is probably the most bizarre vanity project I've seen since Freddie got fingered, the Tom Green movie. Oh, fuck. Like, there's no reason for this fucking movie to exist. Yet it's out there, and you can buy this on DVD. And I don't get it. Like, I've never really been a huge fan of Martin Short, to be honest. No. no. Like, Ed Grimley on Saturday Night Live kind of always irritated me. I always found him to be, like, one of the lesser like one of the lesser cast members of SCTV. He made a movie with Charles Grodin called Clifford, which I know has a cult following, which I couldn't stand because it's him playing like a 12 a year old boy or not even, not even like an eight year old boy as an adult. And that was really annoying. And I just don't get how this exists. Like there's stuff at the beginning where he goes to Toronto and he goes to the film festival and he's like looking around and that stuff's okay. You know, and, you know, but then when he becomes this like big star amongst the celebrities, like all the celebrities, like, oh, where's that Jimmy Glick? I love him. Let him interview me. I'm buddies with him. I'm like, why do you think like actors would take time out to spend time with this dude? Like, I, probably not. But there's scenes mm -hmm. in this where he's like interviewing Steve Martin. He's interviewing Kurt Russell. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Freaking Jake Gyllenhaal shows up briefly in a scene where he's being interviewed and i'm like why did all these people agree to be in this i'm like oh because it was the it was tiff so they were like were kind of forced into it i bet you there's a scene where he's like keith or sutherland is walking down the red carpet and the joke is that martin shortish jimmy glick just keeps going kiefer 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 until he starts paying attention to him that's not funny that's annoying yeah. So, and ask him a question like, oh, you're from Canada, huh? What's so great about Canada? And I'm like, this is, this is not funny. And he gives himself this kind of lisp too. Oh, you like Canada, huh? I'm like, no. And then just that murder mystery stuff is like really obnoxious. And I don't understand. Like, this was so fucking weird, dude. Like, I can't say I enjoyed it. But I can't not say that I wasn't like, why does this exist when I was watching the whole thing? 
and I'm not gonna. I'm not sure if I would recommend it to anybody, but at the same time, I'm like, if you'd like to watch a train wreck, like the a vanity project train wreck, then maybe you should watch it. It's one of those movies where you know that, like, if you tell someone to watch it who likes these weird vanity projects, and then walk away from it, like wash your hands clean of it. And then if they come at you later, you can be like, I fucking warned you. I told you, <laughs> but you still insisted on watching this shit. So that's what Jiminy Glick and Lala Wood is. So fucking, wow. so fucking weird this exists, dude. Well, so, I like Jan Hooks. She's pretty good in it because all the scenes between her and him, like Martin Short, are improv and obvious improv. And their stuff's actually pretty good. Because it's mostly about like her getting annoyed at him for not looking after the kids or wanting to have sex with him and stuff. And that stuff's kind of amusing. But I'm just like, why did they make this movie? It's like they they were at TIFF for the whatever. How long's TIFF gone for like two weeks? Yeah. So. They were at TIFF for like two weeks and like, let's quickly bang out this this basic plot summary with this character I created. And then we'll have everybody improvise so it's it's really bizarre in that sense but uh i can only recommend it for people who need to see a train wreck like it's like a fucking train wreck like if you watch freddy got fingered and you want to see something that's sort of on the level of that but not quite as disgusting then maybe you could watch this what's with fucking canadian comedians deciding to do vanity projects that just are so bizarre and misfire so badly. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's so fucking weird, dude. Like, I'm worried that when I finally get around to watching The Extreme Adventures of Super Dave, it's going to be another one of these situations. None of, none of these work, man. Like, none of... No. I, I find all these Saturday Night Live SCTV offshoot movies never work, right? Well, even like, the Kids in the Hall offshoot, Brain Candy didn't really work for me. Yeah, like, I mean, Wayne's World was okay, but I mean... Really, more often than not, these end up sucking. Right? Yeah, more often than not, you get it's Pat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fuck. Or like the ladies. Oh, don't get started. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 That's all I'm going to say about Jiminy Glick and Lala Wood. Very fucking weird. Very weird. <laughs> all right. Well, um, okay. This is uh, one of those movies that I have three copies of for some reason <laughs> like three, I have it on, different, three formats I have, though at least right i have it on an mgm double feature okay i have it on a standalone screen factory disc okay and i have it on a screen factory four pack and that's a movie called what's the matter with helen from 1971 really you have it that many copies i do and i've not and, even ever seen this movie and i don't even know why i have this many copies um Okay, so this is directed by Curtis Harrington, who's um, definitely building up a cult following. He directed a movie called Night Tide, um, another one called Queen of Blood. He did uh, another movie um, called um, Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. Um, and that's what this is paired with on the MGM disc. Um, okay, so this one stars Shelley Winters as Helen. So immediately you're kind of like, okay, well, there's obviously a problem with Helen. Thanks. Thank you, title. Um, uh, Shelley Winters, if you don't know who she is, legendary screen actress, probably best known to 
our fans as she was in the Poseidon Adventure, of course. She was in Bloody Mama, and she was also in uh, Night of the Hunter with, um, what was it, Robert Mitchum? Yeah, I think so. Oh, and she was also in, was it Foxy Brown or Coffee? Oh, was she in one of those? Yeah. Yeah, she was the like the bad, like the 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 villain in one of those two. Yeah, she she's kind of got a, got a strange career, but yeah. Anyway, she stars as Helen, um, and she co-stars with Debbie Reynolds, um, Carrie Fisher's mom, who was one of the stars of Singing in the Rain. Yep. And and there are these women, Adele and Helen. So they, um, the movie opens with kind of newsreel footage, and their sons had killed someone and these women have kind of come under fire like in the media circus surrounding this murder the sons have gone to jail these two moms are kind of under fire so they are like fuck this let's hightail it out of new york city and let's go to california and we're gonna go there under assumed under new names and we're gonna open a dance studio because that's debbie reynolds right so that's what they do off they go to California, they open a dance studio for children that are like trying to be like the next Shirley Temple. And this is kind of a period piece. So it's set in like the 30s or 40s or 50s or whatever, whatever Shirley Temple Temple is. So it's um it's it's not a contemporary movie. Uh, so they're starting this dance studio. All these like rich women are bringing their daughters in to like learn dance from Debbie Reynolds. Um, Dennis Weaver shows up as this cowboy, of course. Uh, Dennis Weaver, of course, from the movie Duel and um, the TV show McLeod. He's like this Texan kind of playboy dude. Yeah. And his daughter is, is one of the students. And he kind of falls, starts falling for Debbie Reynolds' character. Okay, then we get... Like, we can tell Helen's a bit off, like the Shelley Winters character. We can tell she's a bit off. She's, like, kind of into, really into religion. So listening to this uh, radio religious evangelist host all the time named Sister Alma, played by Agnes Moorhead from Bewitched. Um, she's, so she's really into the Bible. She's kind of having visions of, like, I guess some tragic things that happened in her past. So she keeps having visions of these things. Um, so we know she's a bit off. But anyway... As this dance studio gets going, we then get three extended dance sequences. Um, one with Debbie Reynolds doing tap dancing in the studio as a rehearsal. And then we get a full-blown like show, like a showcase for the kids, where there's three separate numbers in their entirety. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck? Like I was, I was expecting this like psychological horror movie, but I'm in the middle of like a Debbie Reynolds dance movie and with children. So we've got we got this like Shirley Temple like lookalike doing this song about animal crackers and all these like little kids dressed as like the soup, the animals and the animals. Oh no! Or whatever. Oh yeah, it was actually pretty good. I was actually pretty entertained. Then okay, this is where it gets kind of crazy. Crazy. Then we get this young another kid doing her best Mae West impression in a really kind of like offside scene nowadays um, where she's like talking about men and stuff. And it's like this little eight-year-old dressed like Mae West. That's really weird. And then to make things even weirder, I figured out that the kid that's doing that sequence is fucking Annie from the original Friday the 13th. No. Yeah, yeah. As a kid. It was fucked up. So <laughs> Robbie Morgan plays this kid that does the Mae West thing. Wow. Then there's, 
yeah, yeah, it was fucked up. And then next we get like this, um, we get this other music sequence where they're like all dressed there. It's like a, a tribute to president Roosevelt. And they're all like dressed like in like, it's like it's go, go America song. And like, there's like 40 kids on this, on the stage. Anyway, there's a, a kid who kind of MCs this last bit and introduces it. Like for the last bit of our program, we're going to be doing this. Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, that kid is fucking Pamela Ferdin, um, from, she was in the beguiled as a child actress, but she also ended up being in the fucking toolbox murders. So we've got two kind of iconic horror actresses here from two pretty iconic movies uh, as ch- as children, which I thought was pretty crazy. Anyway, from here, um, the movie um, um, after all these dance sequences happen, then we finally get the kind of psychological um, thriller that we were kind of expecting, and. Um, you know, where Shelley Winters is just going more and more crazy and some bad shit starts to happen. And then it, it, um, it kind of culminates in a, in a, in a violent sequence, um, which I didn't really think was that, I didn't really think this was that, like that great of a movie actually. And I honestly, I didn't have super high expectations. I don't really know why I've been obsessed with buying this. I think because um, I knew, I know it's going out of print. Um, as it's a lot of the Scream Factory um, MGM stuff, um, and I thought, well, Shelley Winters can be can be good. She she, she can play nuts pretty good, um, and I I didn't really know what to think about Debbie Reynolds, but um, it ended up kind of playing out the way I kind of expected it to. Um, I, I don't I don't know if I would recommend this. It was a fine. You know, it was fine to watch, but it was one of those ones where I don't think I'll revisit it, but it was kind of fine while it was on. I, I'd say if you're a Shelley Winters fan, it's worth checking out. If you like Debbie Reynolds, as I know you do, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of fun to see her in these dance sequences. Um, I thought that that weird trivia about the child actors was kind of cool. Um, but overall, I mean, I, this was really nothing to write home about. Um, I will say, if you do not want this movie to be spoiled for you, do not look at your DVD cover and do not look at the poster because it's all there. Um, but it had a creepy ending and, and um, you know, it had, it had a few things going for it. I wouldn't say it was a complete wash, but uh, I, I don't know if I'd run out and buy the Blu-ray like I did, even though it's going out of print. You can get it in multiple other ways. Um, and it would, this would probably be better suited for like a multi-pack, like buy that DVD pack if that's yeah. what you're after. I have the four movie pack that it's part of. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I've never thought of upgrading it. So that says yeah. something. I mean, I've known about this movie for years, but I've never had a desire to really watch it. So what's that say? Yeah, it, it is. It's it's um, yeah. It, I I totally agree with you. Like it's, it's and same with the, the follow up. Who slew whoever slew Auntie Rue? Uh, kind of they're kind of cool titles, but that's really it. But I kind of I I feel like I already know what the movie's going to be without even having seen it. You yeah. know what I mean. And that's yeah, yeah. this this kind of played out exactly like that. But I did think that I did think the kid the kid stuff was kind of kind of a cool touch. And and seeing Debbie Reynolds doing dance scenes in this weird horror movie was kind of kind of fun too. And also seeing her and Dennis Weaver play mini golf was pretty fun. Well, that's, so it had a few it had a few moments, right? I'd like to see right. Dennis Weaver play mini golf with Debbie Reynolds. Maybe there could be yeah. like a maybe there could be like a tanker truck like menacingly revving its engine in the watching. <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he was he was much more um, 
he was much more McLeod in this movie than he yeah. was the guy in Duel. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Makes sense if he had a cowboy hat on. <laughs> so, mm. so uh, you know, sometimes I love it when you're at like a thrift store or a pawn shop or something and you're looking at the movies and you come across something that you've never heard of and you pick, you just pull it out and you look at it and you're like, okay, I'm going home and I'm watching this, this tonight. And that's what the next one is something I did. I'd never heard of it. I saw when I pulled it out and saw that Harvey Keitel starred in it and Earth, Wind and Fire starred in it. I was like, I'm totally in. And that's a movie from 1975 called That's the Way of the World, directed by Sig Shore, who is most known for producing all the Superfly movies. Mm -hmm. And he also directed a female vigilante movie in 1985 called Sudden Death, which I've been trying to track down, but is is pretty hard to come by. So automatically, I'm like, okay, Harvey Keitel, Earth, Wind and Fire, um, 1975, 70s movie. Uh, It's basically about Keitel playing a wonderkind music producer who is trying to break this band called The Band, played by Earth, Wind and Fire. So, you know, it opens up with Earth, Wind and Fire in the studio recording the title track with Keitel's producer at the boards and like, you know, going jamming along and helping them make this hit song. And I'm like, this is fucking rad right off the bat. I'm like, Earth, Wind and Fire getting their their instruments ready and then they break into the song and the song's really good. Like, I like that song, but I didn't know they had made this movie. And I'm like, this is really good so far. And then, you know, he's Kaitel's character is called to from the higher ups at the record company. And so he goes up to the office and they're like, hey, we need you to stop what you're doing. We've got this band coming in called The Pages. And I need you to we need you to produce them because we think they're going to be the next big thing. And they put on the tape for him. And it's this really lame sounding pop group. They sound kind of like, you know, the Carpenters to use them as a comparison. So they're like this really lame kind of poppy group. And everyone's just like in the office, just like getting down, snapping their fingers to it. And you see his character just sit there trying not to smirk like, oh, my God, this is not good. He's smirking about the music. But they say, "Okay, that's it. You're doing it. I don't care. They threaten him, basically. They're like, you're doing it. He's like, but I want to break this other bend. Like, no, you're the pages. This is what you're doing. And so this is your job. So I'm like, okay, so far, so good. I like all this internal record company, you know, finagling going on. Then Kaitel leaves, goes out in his little roadster and drives through fucking 1970s New York City. I'm okay with seeing scenes like that. I'm like, 1970s New York. Good. Let's see this shit. So he's driving around New York and then, uh, you know, the pages show up and, you know, and up to this point, I'm like, you know, all this music business stuff they're doing in this movie seems really legit to me. Like, it sounds like, like it, it seems like someone who's involved in this movie has knows working knowledge of the, of the music industry, like the record company industry. Cause this all seems really legit. You know, they like talk at talk, one point in this movie, they talk about payola and I'm like, yeah. You know, that was a thing like payola was you record company pays a DJ to play their single so many times an hour. And that's how acts broke. And that's addressed in this. And there's a scene where, you know, uh, uh, Kaitel's character goes to visit this old record executive 
who explains all this stuff to him is like, no, it's payola. This is what's going to happen. This is what the record company is. You just have to go and do what they say. And the guy playing the old record executive is actually Sig Shore himself oh, cool. in a role, but he's not billed as that. He's billed under a different name. But all that stuff is really great. And all the stuff with Earth, Wind and Fire is really great. But then Earth, Wind and Fire are pushed out of the movie. So we have this focus on the pages and the pages are like kind of this family act. So like you've got Valour is the girl played by Cynthia Bostic and Gary is her brother played by Jimmy Boyd. And uh, Jimmy Boyd was in, uh, he's like a child actor. I can't remember what he was in, but he's a child actor and he's got like a cocaine habit in this movie. And then their dad is like the third member of the group. And they're like this supposedly religious act and their songs about this happy go lucky thing, but the brothers off snorting Coke off to the side and Valour played by Bostic has like got these dreams of stardom and she starts kind of hitting on Kaitel's character and, then they start recording their song in the studio and all this stuff. I was like, this is really cool. Like again, like the earth, wind and fire stuff at the beginning, you know, you've got, you've got like them recording the song and bringing in session musicians to overlay it and Kaitel producing it. And like the most exciting scenes I've ever seen of people pushing up knobs on fucking, you know, soundboards <laughs> and stuff. And, you know, I'm like, this stuff's really cool. And, I'm like, I really like this. It's really great. But I've got, I'm like, I'm getting sick of hearing this fucking song over and over again, though. And I wish this song would end because it's no earth, wind and fire song. And then it just becomes this really lame love story between Kaitel and Valour, the Cynthia Bostic character, where she starts getting pop like famous and he's produced the hit album. And I'm just like, why do we? why did you do this? Like I wanted a movie about the music industry and instead you've got it being this love story and you've got Kaitel kind of selling out from his original ideals his character had. So he could be with this like really like she, this chick who becomes really egotistical, the more famous she gets. And I'm like, I don't really like this stuff. I don't want to hear a junkie pop song. I want to see more earth, wind and fire. Then earth, wind and fire pops up playing a concert in the middle of a fucking roller rink and all was good in the world for about 10 minutes <laughs> when that happened. So I'm like a fucking roller rink earth, wind and fire in the middle of it. Yes. But then it goes back to the stupid love. So story. And I'm like, I don't really like this. This final third is dragging the movie down. And then there's a redemption near the end. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's cool. But it, I just didn't, I think it could have been so much better than it was because all the music industry stuff, great. All the stuff outside of it, not great. And Kaitel, mm -hmm. honestly, isn't that good in this. Like, he's pretty wooden for the most part. Like, there's a couple times when he gets to give really enthusiastic speeches. But apart from that, he just seems to like be staring off into the distance and not really caring that much about this. I mean, I think this he made this right after Mean Streets. I wow. believe... So I'm just like, he just doesn't seem to, he seems to be phoning it in at times during this. But um, the only other thing I got to say is uh, Cynthia Bostic, who played Valour, is really good in this, but it's her only film credit. So that, I find that really weird. Like, I don't know. I think she might have been trained as a musician, but she's just really good playing this, like, this girl who has these big dreams of being a musician and how it changes her. And I thought she was really good doing that, but I just think she was, it's hindered by that whole love story angle. So 
Have you even heard of this one? Um, I knew there was an Earth, Wind, and Fire movie, but yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know Harvey Keitel was the star. Yeah, like so I, that's because I, I love him, and uh, that's strange to me. Yeah, like I, I stumbled. I saw the spine of this at the store, and it said that's the way of the world. And with a title like that, I wouldn't have cared. But the Owen world was a record, so that made me pull it out, right? And I pull it out, and I'm like, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Harvey Keitel. <laughs> yeah. And then I flip it over. I'm like, sick, sure. I'm like, okay, you're coming home with me. <laughs> so, yeah, I, it's a bummer that it wasn't as good as it could have been. Um, but I can't not slightly recommend it just for all that music industry. So like if you have any at all, any interest in the inner workings of the record industry, this is a, this seems really legitimate to me. Like this really seems to have nailed that section of the movie. And of course, if you like seeing fucking Earth, Wind & Fire playing at a roller rink. Yeah. What else do you need? Really? You just got to muddle your way through all that other crap. But there's stuff in here worthwhile. Trust me. Trust me. Nice. Well, seeing as Earth, Wind & Fire did music for Roller Boogie, and Roller Boogie had a guy named Phones in it, played by Sony Jackson... Why don't we talk about a movie with Stoney Jackson in it? Okay. <laughs> this is a weird, weird how there's all these people popping up. <laughs> what Phones was a man. Phone, Phones was a man. Okay, this is uh, the next in the Milk Creek set. Nice. Um, let's see if you can guess it without, uh, you might know, but okay. this, is a, this is a tennis sex comedy. Jocks. Yes. Nice. <laughs> I actually kind of, I kind of like jocks. Okay, so Jocks from 1986, directed by Steve Carver, who's done everything from Big Bad Baba to Lone Wolf McQuaid. The Jocks. Um, <laughs> the Jocks. Um, I knew nothing about this. I knew the cover, which is pretty um, uh, pretty promiscuous with, uh, with a woman in a headband straddling a dude on a gym bench, it looked like. Yeah. Um, but I've never, I've never seen this. I think I have the VHS somewhere. Anyway, it opens with fucking Christopher Lee, of all people. And he's like the headmaster of this college. Um, and he's kind of reaming out his athletic director, Beetle Bob. Beetle, Beetle Bob, um, played by Archie Armstrong. Um, kind of a tough, usually a tough kind of character actor. He's been in stuff like The Car, Race with the Devil, Children of the Corn. And uh, evil speak. He's been in tons and tons of stuff. Anyway, it's weird to see him kind of playing this. Well, it was weird to see the two of these guys opening the sex concert mm-hmm. with this kind of goofy scene. And, and I just could not get past Christopher Lee. Like, I'm like, what the fuck are you doing in this movie? <laughs> like, it didn't make any sense to me. Like, I knew his career had a bit of a downturn, but I never, ever would have imagined Christopher Lee in a sex comedy. And I hope there's not more. I think this was maybe a one-off, but yeah, it was bizarre. You never know with his career later in the in his later days. Yeah, it, it was bizarre, man. Anyway, they're talking, and and Christopher Lee's basically like, "Look, I just you you suck, Beetle Bob. Like nothing. You none of none of your um, teams have won anything. We haven't won a championship in whatever twenty years. I want someone to win, and they." basically figure out that the tennis team is the only chance they have for winning some sort of some sort of championship that year 
but this tennis team um, is this kind of motley crew of characters, but their star is a guy named The Kid, played by Scott Strouder, who has been um, kicked off the team. So Christopher Lee's like, look, I don't fucking care. I want this guy playing with, playing on the team, and because this team's got a sh- ch- chance of winning the championship, and I want these guys to go to Vegas and win this championship. So off they go. Um, the kid is brought back onto the team, and they head to Las Vegas in 1986 with their coach, played by Richard Roundtree, a.k.a. Shaft. Um, I really loved the, this Vegas footage. I mean, I love Vegas movies. Um, this is one I didn't know about, which is always, I didn't know this was set in Vegas. It actually takes place, a lot of the action takes place at a place called the Desert Isle Motel, which is got a sort of a famous landmark of this homemade pink elephant. It's kind of, it's a bit iconic, um, but it actually still stands. This motel is still there with all the development in Vegas. It's now called the Diamond Inn and it's pretty much across the street from the Mandalay Bay. And it's pretty bizarre because, you know, Vegas is like these monstrosity hotels and you still got this little hotel that appeared in jocks as the, the central place. And the pink elephant still exists, so you can go there in in Vegas and see that. And I'm certainly going to be doing that next time I go to Vegas. Anyway, the the group's still there. They get up to their usual hijinks that, that, um, you know, teenagers or young people get into in these movies. We've got the usual group of guys, uh, including, in addition to the kid, we've got a guy named Jeff, played by Perry Lang, who I know best from Spring Break as the main main party dude. Phones, Stoney Jackson from Roller Boogie plays Andy. He's this black guy who um, has this kind of, he's not gay in the movie, but he has this gay shtick um, where he acts gay. You know, this is that, this is that 80s, a lot of homophobia and racist stuff going on, but that's just, it was just of the time. So I don't really hold it against the movie, Um, but, you know, trigger warning if you're, if you're offended by that stuff, this is probably not the movie to watch. We've also got, you know, a, a Mexican character, and um, you know, there is some there is some racist comments. Like at one point, uh, um, J- uh, Perry Lang's character gets drunk, and he says, "I'm drunker than a hundred Indians." So shit like that, which would not fly now. So um, again, if you're sensitive to that stuff, you're gonna be upset. And there's a guy named Tex who's kind of like the stud of the group. Um, they do, you know, the usual stuff. They, you know, they're downtown in Las Vegas, going to all the casinos. They end up at a biker bar at one point in the movie. Uh, the kid, you know, is wearing a Huey Lewis shirt at one point in the movie. So it's got 80s written all over it. Um, surprisingly, there was not a lot of nudity in this movie. There was a sort of a half-assed wet t-shirt contest. And then there was this weird scene where they're all sitting around this table in this bar and playing strip poker um, that... It just didn't. It didn't have the gratuitous nudity that a lot of these movies had, but it still had a, a few boobs, if that's your thing. Um, I really enjoyed the '80s Vegas scenery. Um, you know, a lot of these hotels are gone now, like the Sands. Um, the downtown area looks completely different now, so it's kind of cool, kind of a time capsule. There's a lot of Vegas footage in this, which I really like, Doug. Um, and we've also got a couple of um, jerk characters that we usually see in these kind of movies. One of them is played by future director Tom Shadyak, who went on to direct um, Ace Venture, Pet Detective, and a number of Jim Carrey movies. 
and his buddy uh, played by Christopher Murphy. Now, the one thing I will note about this movie is that it's supposed to be a sports movie about tennis. And I don't even remember the tennis. <laughs> like, I really don't. I don't remember how they won. I don't remember anything about the tennis, which I think is really unfortunate because I, I do like sports movies and I do like them building up to that finale. Oh, I'm kind of, it's kind of coming back to me now. Um, but it, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't exciting. Like, I wasn't like a lot of the sport. It wasn't like the Karate Kid or like, you know, a lot of the sports movies that we like. It just mm. didn't build. It didn't build up on what it could have with the whole tennis angle. Um, I it, and it just seemed like you know, like it, it was a tournament, but it wasn't sort of structured the way like tournament movies should be structured. So I, I felt like there was a real missed opportunity there with the tennis stuff, and it was more focused on these guys just getting drunk, and it was also focused on um, the kid falling in love with this. Um, a very, very young um, Mariska Hargitay, um, who went on to be on, well, she's Jane Mansfield's daughter and went on to be on uh, uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Um, but she looked completely different. I couldn't believe how how uh, she looked in this movie, like so different than now. I mean, she's still a beautiful woman now, but like, yeah, she was a real knockout back then. Back then. But um, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was a fun movie and it had enough like weird, like, you know, these, all these different actors popping up at the Vegas footage, all that stuff really kept me interested, but I, I did feel there was a missed opportunity from the sports angle. It could have really, really uh, made this a lot more suspenseful and uh, made it a lot more engaging than it, than it was, but it was still fun. Yeah. I, I, I kind of like this one. I like it a lot more than I thought I was. And you're right. I don't really remember any sports in it either. Is this, yeah. one, is this the one where there's a scene early on where there their are cars rolling down a steep hill? Is that this? Is that yeah. this one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I, I, yeah. I remember thinking that scene was pretty good. Yeah, that's kind of the introduction of the kid. Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, no, I remember kind of liking it, but I'm the same as you. I was like, Christopher Lee. <laughs> but Yeah, it was so weird. And then, like, seeing Archie Armstrong, there's a scene where they, like, um, they trap him by, like, getting him, getting all these hookers in his hotel room and then him taking pictures with these naked hookers and yeah it's pretty bizarre seeing rg armstrong like with like naked <laughs> naked women in these polaroids that was kind of a weird angle too so i don't know i mean it had enough fun fun characters popping up and donald gibb from revenge of the nerds was in yeah. this and um had enough of that stuff popping up and, and the old vegas stuff that it was it, it, it was definitely worth watching especially for the corduroy people in the Mill creek zone <laughs> okay <laughs> um all right so since you mentioned karate kid i might as well talk about a tv show i started watching um this is a show that one of our listeners had been kind of getting us to try and watch for a while and i'd been resisting because it was on youtube and who watches fucking tv shows on youtube let's be honest here who wants to pay youtube premium to watch a tv show so when it finally made its way to Netflix, I said, okay, let's give it a shot. And that's a show called Cobra Kai. And uh, I just finished watching season one. So I'm not going to really talk a lot about the plotting or anything. I'm just going to say that. Um, so it brings back William Zabka and Ralph Macchio from the original Karate Kid film, 
which is a movie I had not seen for the first time until about five years ago, actually, if you, if I want to be oh, honest. Yeah. And it's, not, and it's not really a movie that, I, so it's not a movie that I have a real big, like nostalgia for, or a love for particularly, because I saw it when I was a, in my forties. So, you know, I don't have that real connection to Karate Kid that a lot of people had that grew up that are my age. Um, so I was, that's also kind of why I was kind of like, well, yeah, I'm not a huge cry. I like, I like karate kid, but I'm not like, Oh my God, they made a karate kid show. So I wasn't rushing to see this. Um, so William Zack is back. Ralph Macchio's back. They're playing the same characters as they did in the original. But what I really like about this one is that they flipped the script on it. So the protagonist is William Zabka's character. And the antagonist is Ralph Macchio's character. So it's 30 years after the tournament. William Zack is a real fuck up who's like trapped in time. So he drives around in like a, a like a, you know, a T-bird and cranks like hair metal songs. And he's kind of drinks a lot of beer and he's just kind of like a waste case who like doesn't get along with his son and everything. And, but he decides one day that he's going to reopen the Cobra Kai dojo and, and re and, you know, train some kids in karate at the same time, Ralph Macchio has gone on to become like this super successful, like used like car dealership guy who has a who's like got a standard nuclear family and is everyone likes him in that. So it kind of like, plays off that way but the focus is on Zabka and it's about him like training this new kid called Miguel played by Zolo Mare de Nuva who was really good in the in the first season and and kind of like the conflict that pops up between him and and Machio's character and I thought it was really fun actually like I thought that the um the flipping of the script really was what made it work because you know they could have just gone back and and made it a standard show about Machio's character. But instead of doing that, they're like, let's make this about William Zadka. That guy needs some more play. And I'm like, fuck yeah, William Zadka needs more play. He played the best bullies of all in all the eighties movies. And he's just, he's like a lovable fuck up in this. Like, you know, he's not a nice guy particularly, and he's kind of a loser, but at the same time, you're kind of like, I like him. He's a cool guy. I, like mm-hmm. he's just a, he's just fun and likable. And then Macho, you're like, what a fucking nerd! <laughs> like the first season, you're like, oh, why did we think Daniel San was so cool? You know, and and then they've just like kind of pilfered in flashbacks to the original, and a lot of people from the original show show up in it, and it just, I just like the real spirit of this. Like I I like that they took something old and made it new by taking it in a different direction. And I think a lot of people don't do it properly, but I think Cobra Kai, at least in the first season, did it, did a really good job of capturing the essence of Karate Kid, but making it into more of a, like a nostalgia piece, but also like just something that's really fun to pop on when you're eating dinner or something. And I I think the leads did really good in it. Um, And I just think it's a fun show. And I was quite, I'm quite impressed by the first season actually. So yeah, do you have any interest in watching it? I kind of do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. I need to watch Karate Kid again. To, to no, no, no. They kind of re, they kind of recap Karate Kid in the actual first season for you. Okay, good. Yeah. So I mean, like, I just that's that's been my thing. I and I haven't really been that interested in revisiting Karate Kid. 
Yeah. So I've been like, well, I gotta watch Cody Kid before I watch Cobra Kai, but maybe I don't. So. No, you don't. They recap a lot of it in in the series, and and there's a lot of parallels between the the movie and the series too that go on. Um, I know the first two seasons were on YouTube, as, but but I mean now they're easily streamable on on Netflix, and apparently there is a third season coming. But okay. I I had quite a lot of fun with the first season, so yeah, I I definitely recommend it to anybody who likes Karate Kid or just likes '80s movies in general, and who likes William Zabka because who fucking doesn't like William Zabka? Let's be honest yeah. here, yeah, like who doesn't? Cool. The guys the guy's rad, or he was rad in the '80s, and he hasn't really done tons of stuff since. So to have him come back and be triumphant in Cobra Kai, I'm down with that shit. I'm nice. definitely down with that shit. Isn't Martin Cove in this too? Martin Cove is. In it, in a in flashback mostly. Okay. I don't really want to say too much about Martin Cove. <laughs> well, he's on the posters. I think he has more of an involvement in the second season. Yeah, yeah. So let's okay. just put it at that. So yeah, I, cool. I'd rec- I I recommend the show. I think it's a lot of fun, and uh, I'm sorry I slipped on the uh, on the recommendation for so long uh, to to the listener who recommended it. But uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of fun. Well worth nice. seeing. Cool. All right. Um, oh, we're running out of stuff here, aren't we? Yep. We're almost done. Yeah, I have two um, left. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about Trilogy of Terror from 1975. Okay. Um, the TV movie um, directed by Dan Curtis, uh, who, of course, did Dark Shadows and um, was involved with Kolchak, um, mainly the Night, Stop- Night Strangler, sorry. The um, probably I've seen the two, two Kolchak TV movies, and I like the Night Strangler more than the Night Stalker, so that's cool. Um, I've never seen this one. Um, I know all about the uh, Zumi fetish doll, um, but that's about all I do. But I, it seems like I've I've seen that fucking doll so much in like clip shows and things like that that I felt like I'd already seen that sequence. Um, but this is a trilogy starring. That was made for TV in 1975, starring Karen Black, who plays in all three, um, plays the lead in all three of the stories in this anthology. Um, if you don't know who Karen Black is, she had a very quite a, quite a career. Mm-hmm. Um, probably most notable in Five Easy Pieces, Easy Rider, and for me, a, a movie called Ruben and Ed with Crispin Glover. It's pretty great. Um, all the stories are from uh, writer Richard Matheson. Uh, original stories by him. Um, two of the the last story, Amelia, was also the screenplay was also done by Richard Matheson. Uh, the DP on the the um, movie was uh, Paul Lohman, who uh, has worked with Robert Altman quite a bit in the seventies um, on movies like Nashville. He also was the DP on Coffee. Okay, so we got three stories here. Um, I had really high hopes for this. I mean, this is one of the horror TV movies. And we love TV movies on this show, as we've talked about many times. So I've never seen this. I really was expecting to love it. And it started. First story is called Julie. It's about this um, this kind of creepy dude named Chad, who's a student, uh, college student. And he decides he's going to get with one of his teachers named Julie. Um, who's kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of mousy and uh, uh, keeps to herself. And uh, he's kind of made it his goal that he's going to, like, hook up with her. So he 
basically talks her into going on a date with him. He roofies her at a drive-in, kind of cool seeing a drive-in, and then takes her to a motel and takes pictures of her. And then then some shit happens that uh, kind of turns things around a little bit. Um, but the story was okay. It was a good. It was a good beginning. It was nothing spectacular, but it's an anthology, so I'm usually expecting there to be a bit, a bit, a bit, a bit, be a bit of a weak link. But this was this was okay. I mean, it was it was it was it was fun. I, I enjoyed the, the I enjoyed how it played out. I liked Karen Black. Blah blah blah. And I thought Robert Burton playing the, the creepy dude was 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 he was well cast. Then we go to the next story, Millicent and Therese. Um, this is a story, I don't even know. I mean, it's, it's it stars George Gaines along with Karen Black. George Gaines with the Police Academy movies. I don't really want to say too much about this. I mean, when I was watching it, I kind of knew where it was going within about fucking two minutes. Um, but I don't know if this was a big reveal back in the day. But for me, I was just kind of like, I knew pretty much instantaneously what was going to happen. Mm. Um, so it, it didn't really play out too well for me. I was just kind of like, okay, well, kind of saw that coming. And this was kind of, this was the weak link for me. I could have totally done without this story, even though it had Karen Black playing, uh, I, I'm not even going to say that. Anyway, um, but it, yeah, so it was, it was okay. And then finally we have Amelia, which is kind of the star of the show, which is Karen Black alone in an apartment with this doll that she bought for her boyfriend which um, comes to life as uh, with, it's, it's embedded with the, the soul of a Zumi warrior, whatever that means, who's out to basically out for blood. And it's basically her running around the apartment with this doll coming after her. And, and I got to say, it was pretty effective. I liked it. There was a lot of Dutch angles and, and I thought the doll was really well done and it was pretty relentless. And, and um, you know, I thought Black did awesome in a role by herself, you know, she had a lot of scenes, uh, sequences on the phone where she was having to convey a lot of emotion to nobody, and um, in that she had to act against the doll. And I thought it was pretty effective. Um, and and I do I do see why that particular story gets a lot of love. Um, I could certainly imagine if I had watched this in 1975 on TV, it must have blown people's minds, right? I mean, this is really early miniature special effects. Um, and I think it would have been pretty amazing and pretty fucking scary if you didn't know what was coming. Now, because I already have I've known this character for so long and I've seen toys of it and stuff, like mm-hmm. it, it didn't really surprise me that much. Still thought it was pretty well done. But overall, I mean, I, I was a little let down by this, to be totally frank. I mean, I it's not one of my favorite anthologies, that's for sure. It was yeah. decent, but... Uh, nothing spectacular and I kind of I know we did a TV movie episode and I'm I kind of can't remember if we praised this one a lot but uh um I if if we did I kind of take it back a little bit I don't think um, we did I think we might have said it's one of the the, the more known ones or the yeah. better ones or something but uh, uh after watching it I don't know if I necessarily would say that except for the third story yeah I've never I've never been a huge fan of trilogy of terror I've only really liked Amelia, to be honest. Yeah. Like I've never, I've, I've always found it to be kind of, eh. kind of like dead of night, which is another, uh, another one from the same guy. It's, yeah. a, it's the same. It's a TV anthology where only one of the stories is any good. 
So yeah. it seems like he's not, he, he, that's the problem with anthologies, especially TV ones is that they just never seem to fire on all cylinders. Like there's a, always seems to be just one out of a batch of three or four that works. And the rest are just kind of like shrug your shoulders and walk away from. And I found that with trilogy of terror. I just, I don't care about the first two stories particularly. So, I mean, like I could watch that Zuni fetish one again and still like it. Like just the scene where he's like trying to get under the door and jamming his spear or whatever it is under the door, like stuff like that. That's really cool. And I understand, like you said, I understand why it's a, a, it's like one of those things where it's become this well-known thing over time. But does anyone remember the first two stories in that movie? I don't think so. Well, I do feel this movie is really praised. Like, I do feel like it gets a lot of love overall. Now, I don't know if that's just people remembering that that one. Piece, it could be. Right? And and say, oh, Trilogy of Terror is the best. Like, um, but I, I I didn't think this was the best by any stretch. Um, it's out on Blu-ray from uh, Kino Larber. Um, and it's got like double commentary tracks and a bunch of special features. Um, it does seem like they put a lot of work. It's even got a slipcover, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think it's, and I remember Anchor Bay put it out back in the day. I don't know if it. Dark Sky out, put it out on DVD too. Yeah. Like it's come out a lot. Like it's been around for sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's just not, I, I think it could have been a real revelation at the time. But, I think but, Kino also put out the sequel. There was a, there was a yeah, sequel in the nineties well. with uh, Lisette Anthony playing all three roles like Karen Black did in oh, the original. Okay. So Lisette Anthony plays the lead role in the three stories in the sequel. And I remember I don't really like the sequel. I've seen it once, and I remember not really caring for it that much. So who yeah, knows? Yeah, it's too bad because this, this is one of those ones that I've I've always kind of wanted to see, and I was kind of excited to watch it, and. Uh, yeah, it made seventy six minutes feel a little long. And I feel like I should make part. a su- make a supercut of this, where you take the story Bobby from Dead of Night and the story Amelia from Trilogy of Terror, and you wedge those two together, and it'd be <laughs> fucking rad. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise it's, they're kind of like eh. One story. It's so, it's so strange. Like how, like you're working off short, especially when you're working off Richard Matheson's short stories, who did so many Twilight Zone episodes, like. I just, you think you'd be able to come up with three really awesome ones. Like, yeah. why would, so strange. But yeah, too bad. So, Trilogy of Terror gets a, a lukewarm recommend. That'd probably be what I would say too. Yeah. Lukewarm. Watch the yeah. third one on YouTube and be done with it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, anyway. Um, so, my next one is a movie that I, it's the second movie that was. A remake of a 2011 original. Uh, the original is a movie called Gone from S- that was made in Sweden. Uh, the benefit of this movie that I'm about to talk about is that it has the same screenwriter as the original movie, at least. So you know they didn't dumb it down or neuter it for America. Uh, it's a movie that just showed up on demand recently. It's called Alone. And it's directed by John Hyams, who is a the son of Peter Hyams. Uh, Peter Hyams is a pretty well known director. He's uh, he made like uh, you know I think he made Future World, which is the sequel to Westworld, and he's made a bunch of other action movies. Uh, 
John Hyams himself, all I knew him for coming into this was he made a couple of the Universal Soldier sequels recently that were actually quite well, quite good. And he made a movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme called Dragon Eyes, which is supposed to be pretty good. Um, so, like I said, a remake of a 2011 original, and it's it's uh, a pretty simple, uh, pretty tight-knit thriller. Uh It starts with a woman packing up her car in a U-Haul trailer and heading out of the city on a road, like moving basically on a road trip. And she has a run in with this guy on the road. So he basically is going really slow and she's very impatient. So she goes around him to try and pass him. And then he ends up like kind of tailgating him, tailgating her and like, kind of like being very aggressive with her on the road. Um, So later on, he ru- she runs into him again at this hotel and you know and she's just kind of like okay well i got to get away from this guy there's something creepy about him keeps running into him like oh now his car's broken down this is really strange i really need to get away from this guy like she locks her doors and tries to like not associate with him as much as she can and then it it it's like turns out she has a reason to uh, worry about him as he ends up kidnapping her taking her off into a cabin in the woods. And then the movie becomes kind of like a chase movie because it's her being trapped, but then getting free and the rest of the movie becomes a complete chase movie from there. Um, so it's like I said, very, very simple plot, not a lot of, uh, you know, simple story, but told really effectively. I thought that the, uh, the two leads were really great. The girls played by Jules Wilcox, who I haven't really seen in anything before. I thought she was really good. And then our, uh, our baddie is played by a guy called Mar Menchaka, who uh, I really liked in the show Ozark. He was in the show Ozark recently. And um, I just think that it's, uh, it was kind of like um, what I like about the movie is that it was broken down into subsections. So like one section is called the river One's called the road, one's called the ram, and it's just like certain times. Like, so the road is basically like, you know, the stage of when she's being chased, and then the river is her captivity, and the ram is like when she's back on the run, and so on and so forth. So, I liked these title cards, I thought it really gave the movie a flow. Um, there's some really effective, like, like shot like survival stalking moments through the wild in this because Hyams is really does a really good job of um you know using pans and framing and focus pulling and stuff like that to his advantage so like there'll be a scene where she'll be sitting at like a rest stop and we'll see her sitting on the roof of her car like the hood of her car smoking a cigarette and then they'll folk he'll focus pull to the background because she thinks she hears something and it's just a really effective use of that medium. Um, he's, Cause he's also like a DP at times too, uh, John Hyams. And uh, it, like I said, it's just a really simple survival like thriller movie. Um, the finale gets a little action movie type at the end, but uh, I think this is a really solid, solid movie that I'd never heard of before it came out. And I, I saw a couple people on Letterboxd like, giving it fairly high ratings and was like, what is that? And then when I saw that uh, Peter Hyams directed it and it was kind of sounded like to me, like kind of like the hitcher meets, you know, whatever, like a, out, a wilderness survival movie. I was like, I'm kind of in on this and uh, yeah, really, really decent, uh, really well done. And just like 
way better than I was expecting it to be. Um, there's a, there's a really line of, uh, there's a really cool line of dialogue in this where she's kind of begging to him and she's like, I'm not going to tell anybody. I won't tell anybody. And he just looks at her and kind of like gives her this look like a smirk and says, so you think you're the first one to say that, huh? And I was like, Oh fuck a line like that's going to get me every time. Mm. Like, like it's going to get me every time. Um, the only thing I noticed is like the credits say it's 2018. So I I'm thinking this might've sat on the shelf for a couple of years and I don't really know why, because it's a really solid, solid, like action thriller. And uh, I would recommend this if you're into survival movies or movies kind of like Duel and the Hitcher at times. It's a really solid, solid, well-made, entertaining, propulsive movie. So, cool. yeah, that's alone. Have you heard of it? I've seen it pop up on VOD. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I was I I used my scene points to rent it because like I can't go to movie theaters really right now. So I'm like, well, yeah. I got to use these points for something. And since I had heard a couple of people on Letterboxd giving it pretty good ratings, I was like, I'll check it out. And yeah, it's uh, it's worth the six bucks to rent it. Cool. So that's a loan from 2020. Nice. All right. I'm going to go back to Kino Lorber territory. Um this is a now keto has to give you some money <laughs> <laughs> this is a flick that i stupidly bought twice um, oh brother <laughs> i know, I know. I'm such an idiot uh, but that's what happens when, when you're an idiot but uh this you know the reason I, this happened is because i happened to be at um sunrise records and they were having this crazy Kino sale where they were selling all these Kino blues for seven ninety nine. Oh yeah, I remember and, that sale. And I, in a frenzy, I bought it. <laughs> not real, not in not, a frenzy. Not realizing I already owned it. So, Josh, uh, is this is this before you had everything cataloged on your app? <laughs> well, it's still kind of awkward when you're in a store to whip out your app because you know you people think you're price checking on Amazon. Oh, I still anyway. do it. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I'm like, do I anyway, own this? <laughs> what is it? It's a Ted Post movie. Um, and I like Ted Post. He did Magnum Force, the Dirty Harry sequel. He did Five Dressed for Women, the TV is it, movie. Is it Night Kill? It's Night Kill from 1980. Hmm. Um, Ted Post also did um, Diary of a Teenage, or um, that Teenage Checker movie with uh, Charlene Tilton that I really liked. Um, okay, so it's Ted Post. So it's not going to be like a fucking... Dario Argento movie, right? Like this is <laughs> this is a pretty straightforward meat and potatoes thriller um, that I kind of enjoyed. It um, it was originally supposed to be a, a theatrical. Uh, it was supposed to be a theatrical movie starring Jacqueline Smith from Charlie's Angels. This was supposed to be her big movie star break. Um, unfortunately, it played very, very, very limited, and then just got dumped to TV. Um, so it's about Jacqueline Smith is married to Mike Connors, um, a, uh, who played Mannix on TV, um, major TV actor. Um, he's a real fucking prick. So he's this asshole. She's this beautiful, his beautiful wife, and she's uh, running this like home for troubled teens. And uh, he's just like this asshole businessman who like comes home and she's being a dick to her all the time. Um, meanwhile, she's hooking up with her, with his business partner, uh, played by James French Franciscus, uh, from, uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes and Cat of Nine Tails, speaking of Argento. 
Um, and pretty quickly in the, in, into the, into the storyline, um, Franciscus poisons Connors and kills him. And they throw his body in the freezer. Jacqueline Smith is super freaked out by this all because even though the guy's a prick, she just can't believe that her lover killed her husband and that her husband's now in the freezer. Then it turns into this, like, um, kind of a, a weird, like, um, murder mystery where, um, you know, people start dying. Uh, she starts seeing her husband. There's a pretty good car chase where she's being chased by a, a, a car that looks like it's being driven by her husband. Um, we've got a lot of great character actors showing up. Robert Mitchum plays quite a large role in this as a cop. Uh, Fritz Weaver from Creepshow is a super creepy uh, uh, kind of like business man who uh, has donated to her cause, who's like super macking on her, shows up at her house drunk and is trying to get with her. His wife is played by Sybil Danning. Um, and I gotta say that Sybil Danning, you know, a lot of people only know her for her mid 80s action movies. But she had a pretty rad career. I mean, she was in movies from like 1970 on. And she had like seven action movies where she like got naked in the 80s. And that seems to be what people associate with Sybil Danning. But I, I think she needs a, to get a little more credit because she's had a pretty varied career. I thought she was pretty good in this for, for what she did. And overall, I thought this was actually a pretty good like kind of Hitchcockian thriller um, that has a pretty fucking gnarly final act that I was not expecting. I mean, I sort of was expecting it from the cover. Um, like, you know that there's going to be a shower sequence, but I wasn't expecting it to kind of play out the way it did. So um, it was, yeah, pretty, pretty fucking brutal. Um, it was shot in Arizona. So I, I, I always enjoy movies that are like shot in different locations that you wouldn't normally expect. Um, and there's not a lot of movies that I can think of shot in Arizona other than Westerns. Um, I did think that the lead, the top build credits was a little misleading, seeing as a couple of the actors are have very very limited screen time. Um, but overall, yeah, I kind of I kind of dug this. Um, it's got a very very brief appearance by an actress named Belinda Maine. She plays um, Mike Connors' secretary, and uh, if you're a White Fire fan like I am you don't get very many opportunities to see the lead actress from Whitefire show up in anything while she's in fucking Night Kill briefly. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. Um, I did watch the audio commentary uh, by quote unquote film historians. I will say this is the first one I've watched by these guys, Nathaniel Thompson from Mondo Digital and Howard S. Berger from uh, The Distractable Man. Um, I thought they did a really good commentary track. Um, so I, I will listen to more. They actually spent time obviously researching this a little bit although they didn't pick up a Belinda main but not very many people would uh, but I thought they did quite a good job so I, I would recommend listening to the commentary and uh, they drop a lot of titles for other TV movies they talk a lot about Ted Post and um, I thought I thought this was pretty good uh, the only complaint I have um, I mean I think some people might just think this is a pretty standard thriller um, I liked it for all the reasons I kind of talked about. I didn't love it. I mean, this isn't a five-star movie by any stretch, but I'd say it's a solid three, three and a half out of five. Um, but the only problem I would kind of say is they, the DP they had was a guy named Tony Richmond, who, you know, shot stuff like Don't Look Now and Candyman. 
And uh, I just didn't understand why they would pair someone like that with Ted Post, who's, like I said, pretty meat and potatoes. So I think that, they, you know, I felt like he was probably not used to the best of his abilities, especially with this Arizona setting. There were still a few, few cool scenes. But overall, pretty pretty fun movie. I I, uh, I didn't know what to expect, really. And I was just like, I better watch one of these because i got to sell the other one. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it ended up being pretty pretty decent for what it was. So yeah, that's Night Kill. Yeah, I, I bought this too, but I haven't. I had no idea what it's about. I just bought it on the basis of there being a girl in a shower on the cover. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those ones where it's like, yeah, if you, if you one see this, Ted Post. A, yeah, if you see in the Kino sale for ten bucks, then pick it up. I don't know if I pay full price for this thing, but uh, you see it for for in a sale, and I, I think it's worth a lot. Yeah, it's one of those weird. It's one of those weird movies that Kino put out where you're like, where'd this come from? Because Kino has a tendency yeah. to do that a lot more than other boutique labels. Like, kind of now, it's getting to the point where with Scream Factory, you kind of know what to expect by now. Yeah, like, you know to expect that they're triple dipping by now. But whereas Kino is still putting out stuff where you're like, where'd that come from? <laughs> so that's what it's I like. Totally, about- it's totally true. I actually tweeted at Kino recently because there's a pretty fun uh a pretty good uh crime thriller called monument avenue i've talked about it on the show before with dennis leary and i actually tweeted at kino to put it out and i actually think maybe that there's actually a possibility that that could happen like kino is so all over the place mm-hmm. like with their titles like it could be a comedy it could be a drama it could be a horror movie like they kind of pick everywhere where screen factory is very limited and even vinegar syndrome is pretty you know, they're a little more varied, but Kino is like literally all over the place. Oh, they are. And yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. I, I I like being like, holy shit, this is coming out now from Kino? What are they doing? Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. I always like to do that when I see their announcements. So, and hell, they got Times Square coming out. So they've made my life. Oh, is Times Square coming out? I mean, yeah, it's coming from Kino. Oh, fuck. That's awesome. So, I mean, if they can get Times Square out, if they can clear all the music rights for that thing. They can do anything. So, <laughs> um, okay, so my last movie of the night is a movie that um, was supposed to come out last year, but then, you know, I guess a bunch of people decided that they found it offensive and it got pulled out of theaters and sat for a bit. And then it was supposed to come out in theaters and COVID happened, so it never got theaters. So it just, you know premiered at home and they charged 20 bucks for it and it's a movie called the hunt from 2020 directed by craig zobel um basically it's just another most dangerous game riff but the thing about it is dude movies these days are too fucking long and i've said that before and you've said that before what the hunt is it's a nice compact 90 minutes that does not fuck around at all This movie starts with a bunch of super rich people on a plane who are just like, oh, yeah, let's swig this wine and eat this caviar and shit. And this guy stumbles out of the back of the plane and you could tell there's something wrong with him that he's been drugged or something. And they fucking just promptly silence him. And you're like, what's going on here? Well, it turns out that these rich people have started a thing called the hunt where they've grabbed a bunch of people, kidnapped them. And decide to, in the most dangerous game kind of way, hunt them down. So it's basically a bunch of people wake up in a wooded area. They've got a bar gag in their mouth. They don't know where they are. They've got their hands, you know, handcuffed together. 
and then they're walking towards this wide open area and there's a crate in the middle and they're like what's going on so they all head to the crate and from there a bunch of fucking over the top bloodshed and death occurs in a very very quick manner and then the rest and then the movie becomes kind of a chase movie with the main focus of the movie being a character played by Betty Gilpin from the recently canceled glow unfortunately canceled glow um who's just like decides that she's going to turn the tables on her hunters and heads out for very very violent and bloody revenge and dude this movie is fucking rad and i'm not gonna lie it's rad like not only is the violence so over the top and crazy this movie is so dark with its comedy making fun of like you know cancel culture and twitter and all that kind of stuff like i'm just like i just was like holy fuck they're going for it and that's what i love about this movie is that it went for it it just was like we don't care we're just gonna make this most dangerous game movie and it's gonna just be like violent and bloody and just off base and we're just gonna go for it and uh you know it's got lots of familiar faces turning up in the cast who are just there to be fucking killed off two minutes later you know and it's got like this really kick-ass fight scene that ends the last like 15 minutes of the movie where i'm like holy fuck this is rad so i i don't want to talk too much about the plotting and everything but i gotta tell you man whereas gina rodriguez failed to be a female action star Betty Gilpin could fucking easily be a female action star. She is so fucking badass in this movie, dude, that I'm just like, can I please have her just spend like three more movies just going around and fucking getting revenge on people, please? Because she's so badass in this that I want that all the time. So, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I'm sure that there's people out there who hate this movie but I think it's the people who are reading too much into it. Like you got to just kind of ignore the political slant of it. Cause I don't know shit about American politics to begin with. Right. So it's like, just ignore that and watch it as pure action. Watch it as a pure action movie. That's just got so much violence and blood in it and just kick ass fight scenes that you cannot avoid liking this. This is like the most, this is the best big studio action movie I've seen in like a year. Like it's mm. the fights in this are so good, dude. And it's so fucking over the top violent. And Gilpin is so good. So I don't know if you were interested in this, but just let me tell I, you. I've watched, I've watched it. Yeah. Did you like it? Uh, not, not like you did. But I can see where you're coming from. Like, I didn't watch it as a political statement. I watched it as an action movie. Yeah. And I think watching it as an action movie is why I liked it as much as I did. Because I yeah. didn't let all the other stuff infect my head. Like a lot of people seem to be. And Gilpin is kick-ass in this. She is. She's pretty great. Yeah, sure. so I mean, it, I mean, it does have a few moments where I was questioning the logic of the movie, but I'm like, I don't care because I know in, two, in five minutes she's just gonna be kicking someone in the face again. <laughs> so, I I, I I really liked the hunt. I I would I would recommend it quite a bit, actually. Cool. So that's that's, awesome. that's the hunt from 2020. Nice. Josh's Beatrice Adventures. 
All right. I've talked about this one before on our bad cookie episode uh, way back when. Um, but I did decide oh, I'm going to watch the VHS tape because it's come out on DVD a few times and Blu-ray and now it's in a box set. And that's Tetsuo the Iron Man from 1989, directed by Shinya Tsukamoto. Um, Tetsuyo! <laughs> man, I, I... For body horror, it doesn't really get much better than this. I mean, if you're looking for body horror, and I talked about it when we talked about body horror on that episode, um, this is pretty much, like, it's it's just so over the top. It's about a fucking... Okay, it's not really about, <laughs> not really about anything. No. It opens with this guy, like shoving a metal fucking pipe into his leg. He cuts himself open, shoves a metal pipe into his leg, and it's like got all this fucking industrial music playing. It's like... <laughs> and uh, he's shoving the metal in, and then he like fucking... It's all like frenetic, and then he like stumbles out into the road and gets run over by this other dude, this businessman guy. And then the businessman guy like is like, oh shit, and he like, you know, ends up going home, and... Um, finds that he's got this metal like coming out of his cheek when he's shaving. So he continues to shave and then I think he like pulls out the metal or something. And then he starts to like basically turn into metal. And he's got this crazy girlfriend that lives with him and she's like, you know, like fucking sodomizing him with some like a rope, uh, fucking tube or something. And then he like, as this is all happening, the, the industrial music's like, building and building and building and then he like starts to like fucking turn more into metal and like parts of him like metals popping out all over him and then he gets this fucking stands up and he's got this giant dick that's like a drill and it's like and he like goes after his girlfriend (laughs) with the big fucking drill dick and the industrial music playing and fucking then she's like looking all fucking like a lunatic and um and then she, then he fucking stumbles around, and then he comes across this other, this other metal dude who's also like half metal and half guy. And then there's like this fucking battle on the streets, and it's just crazy town. And this is like this is not a standard narrative. This is just like crazy fucking images, like a David Lynch movie with this like like hardcore industrial soundtrack by uh, Chu Ishikawa. And it is nuts. And I, I remembered it being pretty nuts. And, um, you know, it's, it's a hard one to say you really like. Yeah. Because there's really no plot. Um, but just for sheer imagery and energy and gross body horror stuff, um, it's pretty pretty amazing. Especially the fact that it was shot on such a low budget in 1989 in Japan um, by this director who has like gone on to like now he's probably got like 60 credits to his name um the woman uh key fujiwara um she um she was also one of the dps on the movie along with uh, shinya tsukamoto uh she's a performance artist back in japan um who she went out to direct star and direct in a movie called oregon that was also pretty fucked up but mm. she's still doing her thing and I just think this is like a fucking punk rock Japanese crazy, like a punk rock meaning like just, they just said, fuck it. We don't care about movie conventions. We're just doing what we want and making this nutso movie. And it's got a reputation for a good reason. And I do feel like 
anyone who likes claims they are like into body horror movies should at least see this once because it's just so crazy. Um, so I, I enjoyed giving it another spin. Um, I don't know if I'm, um, I think Arrow put out the, the uh, Sukamoto box set. I think so. Tetsuo and Tetsuo 2, and I think it's got Tokyo Fist and Roku the Goblin. I can't remember what's exactly in it, but it's got a whole bunch of his movies. Snake Gajun might be in there. All his movies are pretty interesting. I, I haven't seen all of them. I have seen Tetsuo 2. I have seen Snake of June. Uh, but they're, they're pretty... He's, he's a pretty out there filmmaker and uh, and it's definitely worth your while. It's only 60 minutes long. And uh, I just think it's one of those ones that everyone should kind of check out once, but I don't know if I'd be spending top dollar because I don't think a lot of people are going to like it. But yeah. it's, still, it's still something else. The VHS tape also had this movie called Drumstruck on it, which was about this drummer who um, ends up getting like this other drummer gets jealous of him and ends up killing him and then he gets shocked back to life by by this woman and becomes like this robo drummer and it was it was okay i did remember drumstruck like when i was watching it again i did remember it from back in the day and i was like wow how lucky it must have been to like have been the short chosen to play after tetsuo but also how fucking unfortunate i mean whenever i used to listen to skinny puppy i used to always be like nothing can follow skinny puppy like when you're playing skinny puppy in a car like something like dig it or assimilate you can't really follow it up like anything that you follow skinny puppy with is gonna sound lame you know it's, it's just gonna not have that fucking aggressive power and i kind of feel steam slayer is kind of like that too like if you play slayer and then throw on like any other music, it kind of sounds weak compared to Slayer, right? And that's kind of what I feel about Tetsuo. Like anything you watch right after Tetsuo is going to feel pretty saccharine. <laughs> so it's, it's a pretty hardcore, awesome, like a pretty crazy movie. Um, and it's it's one of a kind and unique. And I, I definitely would recommend uh, checking it out. But uh, it was fun to watch it again. Yeah, I, I'm in the camp of people who don't really like Tetsuo. Well, I don't even know if I like. Tetsuo, I mean, I I under uh, I I admi- I admire it, but yeah. I don't particularly like it. If that makes sense. Well, and I don't think many people do, and I don't even know if I do. All <laughs> I know is that it's it's like an assault when yep. I watch it in a, yep. in kind of a good way. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I don't. It, I can't say I. I can't say it's a great film. You no. know what I mean, but it's something different, and I don't think anyone's really matched it, right? It's just, it's just crazy town. If you like Lynch, like the weird Lynch stuff, you might, you'll probably like it. But if you're, if you're looking for a story and characters and shit, that's not what you're here. You're no, here for. you won't get it from that. For, no. But if you like industrial music and crazy imagery, it's definitely worth a one, one time for sure. Tetsuo the Iron Man. Josh's Beaches Adventures. Okay. What's our pick of the of the episode? Ooh, that's a tough one today. I'll I'll go with mine. My pick of the episode would probably actually be Alone, just because it's a a little smaller movie that I think a lot of people don't know about that actually was exceeded the expectations I had for it. So that's my pick. Uh, I'd probably go with the stylist. Yeah, that'd probably be mine of of this. Or, you know, on a lesser note, you know, Dream Stalker is pretty entertaining. <laughs> Dream Stalker. That movie's going <laughs> to haunt me until I see it. Maybe I'll have dreams of a guy in a biker helmet. <laughs> yeah, with long, long, uh, with a mullet. 
Dude, we should just watch Night School for next episode so we can keep <laughs> this train rolling because I have it too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I okay. do. Um, well, let's, well, I'll talk about that after. All right. Well, anyway, that's the that's our uh, movie COVID movie watching trends this time out. Uh, as always, at the end of the show, we would ask you to if you would like to talk to us about movies we have a discussion group on facebook that you can join in the conversation on we have a twitter or instagram just search for gbw podcast a rating and review wherever you listen to a podcast apple Podcasts, spotify we're apparently on amazon music now and everything uh rating and review there is good but most importantly if you like the show tell a friend it every little bit helps anything else to add there josh no Okay, until next time, (laughs) good night, everybody.